0: CHAPTER SEVENTY OF MIDDLEMARCH BY GEORGE Eliot. THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. RECORDING BY MARGARET ESPAYET. OUR DEEDS STILL TRAVEL WITH US FROM AFAR, AND WHAT WE HAVE BEEN MAKES US WHAT WE ARE. Bulstrode's first object after Lydgate had left Stonecourt was to examine Raffles' pockets, which he imagined were sure to carry signs in the shape of hotel bills of the places he had stopped in, if he had not told the truth in saying that he had come straight from Liverpool, because he was ill and had no money. There were various bills crammed into his pocket-book, but none of a later date than Christmas at any other place, except one which bore date that morning. This was crumpled up with a handbill about a horse fair in one of his tail-pockets, and represented the cost of three days' stay at an inn in Bilkley, where the fair was held, a town at least forty miles from Middlemarch. The bill was heavy, and since Raffles had no luggage with him, it seemed probable that he had left his portmanteau behind in payment, in order to save money for his traveling fare, for his purse was empty, and he had only a couple of sixpences, and some loose pence in his pockets. Bulstrode gathered a sense of safety from these indications, that Raffles had really kept at a distance from Middlemarch since his memorable visit at Christmas. At a distance, and among people who were strangers to Bulstrode, what satisfaction could there be to Raffles' tormenting, self-magnifying vein in telling old, scandalous stories about a Middlemarch banker? And what harm if he did talk? The chief point now was to keep watch over him as long as there was any danger of that intelligible raving, that unaccountable impulse to tell, which seemed to have acted towards Caleb Garth, and Bulstrode felt much anxiety lest some impulse should come over him at the sight of Lydgate. He sat up alone with him through the night, only ordering the housekeeper to lie down in her clothes, so as to be ready when he called her alleging his own indisposition to sleep and his anxiety to carry out the doctor's orders. He did carry them out faithfully, although Raffles was incessantly asking for brandy and declaring that he was sinking away, that the earth was sinking away from under him. He was restless and sleepless, but still quailing and manageable. On the offer of the food ordered by Lydgate, which he refused, and the denial of other things which he demanded, he seemed to concentrate all his terror on Bulstrode, imploringly deprecating his anger, his revenge on him by starvation, and declaring with strong oaths that he never told any mortal a word against him. Even this Bulstrode felt that he would not have liked Lydgate to hear but a more alarming sign of fitful alternation in his delirium was that in the morning twilight raffles suddenly seemed to imagine a doctor present addressing him and declaring that bulstrode wanted to starve him to death out of revenge for telling when he never had told bulstrode's native imperiousness and strength of determination served him well this delicate-looking man himself nervously perturbed, found the needed stimulus in his strenuous circumstances, and through that difficult night and morning, while he had the air of an animated corpse returned to movement without warmth, holding the mastery by its chill impassibility, his mind was intensely at work thinking of what he had to guard against, and what would win him security. Whatever prayers he might lift up, whatever statements he might inwardly make of this man's wretched spiritual condition, and the duty he himself was under to submit to the punishment divinely appointed for him, rather than to wish for evil to another. Through all this effort to condense words into a solid mental state, there pierced and spread with irresistible vividness the images of the events he desired. And in the train of those images came their apology— he could not but see the death of Raffles, and see in it his own deliverance. What was the removal of this wretched creature? He was impenitent, but were not public criminals impenitent? Yet the law decided on their fate. Should Providence in this case award death, there was no sin in contemplating death as the desirable issue, if he kept his hands from hastening it if he scrupulously did what was prescribed. Even here there might be a mistake. Human prescriptions were fallible things. Lydgate had said that treatment had hastened death. Why not his own method of treatment? But, of course, intention was everything in the question of right and wrong. And Bulstrode set himself to keep his intention separate from his desire. He inwardly declared that he intended to obey orders. Why should he have got into any argument about the validity of these orders? It was only the common trick of desire, which avails itself of any irrelevant skepticism, finding larger room for itself in all uncertainty about effects, in every obscurity that looks like the absence of law. Still, he did obey the orders. His anxieties continually glanced towards Lydgate, and his remembrance of what had taken place between them the morning before was accompanied with sensibilities which not had been roused at all during the actual scene. He had then cared but little about Lydgate's painful impressions with regard to the suggested change in the hospital, or about the disposition towards himself, which what he had held to be his justifiable refusal of a rather exorbitant request might call forth. He recurred to the scene now with a perception that he had probably made Lydgate his enemy and with an awakened desire to propitiate him, or rather to create in him a strong sense of personal obligation. He regretted that he had not at once made even an unreasonable money sacrifice, for in case of unpleasant suspicions, or even knowledge gathered from the raving of raffles, Bulstrode would have felt that he had a defense in Lydgate's mind by having conferred a momentous benefit on him but the regret had perhaps come too late. Strange, piteous conflict in the soul of this unhappy man, who had longed for years to be better than he was, who had taken his selfish passions into discipline and clad them in severe robes, so that he had walked with them as a devout choir, till now that a terror had risen among them, and they could chant no longer, but threw out their common cries for safety. It was nearly the middle of the day before Lydgate arrived. He had meant to come earlier, but had been detained, he said, and his shattered looks were noticed by Bulstrode. But he immediately threw himself into the consideration of the patient and inquired strictly into all that had occurred. Raffles was worse, would take hardly any food, was persistently wakeful and restlessly raving but still not violent. Contrary to Bulstrode's alarmed expectation, he took little notice of Lydgate's presence, and continued to talk or murmur incoherently. "'What do you think of him?' said Bulstrode in private. "'The symptoms are worse. You are less hopeful.' "'No, I still think he may come round.' "'Are you going to stay here yourself?' said Lydgate, looking at Bulstrode with an abrupt question." which made him uneasy, though in reality it was not due to any suspicious conjecture. "'Yes, I think so,' said Bulstrode, governing himself and speaking with deliberation. "'Mrs. Bulstrode is advised of the reasons which detain me. Mrs. Abel and her husband are not experienced enough to be left quite alone, and this kind of responsibility is scarcely included in their service of me. You have some fresh instructions, I presume?' THE CHIEF NEW INSTRUCTION THAT Lydgate HAD TO GIVE WAS ON THE ADMINISTRATION OF EXTREMELY MODERATE DOSES OF OPIUM, IN CASE OF THE SLEEPLESSNESS CONTINUING AFTER SEVERAL HOURS. HE HAD TAKEN THE PRECAUTION OF BRINGING OPIUM IN HIS POCKET, AND HE GAVE MINUTE DIRECTIONS TO BULSTRODE AS TO THE DOSES, AND THE POINT AT WHICH THEY SHOULD CEASE. HE INSISTED ON THE RISK OF NOT CEASING, AND REPEATED HIS ORDER THAT NO ALCOHOL SHOULD BE GIVEN. "'From what I see of the case,' he ended, "'narcotism is the only thing I should be afraid of. "'He may wear through even without much food. "'There's a good deal of strength in him.' "'You look ill yourself, Mr. Lydgate, a most unusual, "'I may say, unprecedented thing in my knowledge of you,' said Bulstrode, "'showing a solicitude as unlike his indifference the day before, "'as his present recklessness about his own fatigue,' was unlike his habitual self-cherishing anxiety. "'I fear you are harassed.' "'Yes, I am,' said Lydgate, brusquely, holding his hat and ready to go. "'Something new, I fear,' said Bulstrode, inquiringly. "'Pray be seated.' "'No, thank you,' said Lydgate, with some hauteur. "'I mentioned to you yesterday what was the state of my affairs.' There is nothing to add, except that the execution has since then been actually put into my house. One can tell a good deal of trouble in a short sentence. I will say good morning. "'Stay, Mr. Lydgate, stay,' said Bulstrode. "'I have been reconsidering this subject. I was yesterday taken by surprise, and saw it superficially. Mrs. Bulstrode is anxious for her niece, and I myself should grieve at a calamitous change in your position.' Claims on me are numerous, but, on reconsideration, I esteem it right that I should incur a small sacrifice rather than leave you unaided. You said, I think, that a thousand pounds would suffice entirely to free you from your burdens, and enable you to recover a firm stand? Yes, said Lydgate, a great leap of joy within him surmounting every other feeling. That would pay all my debts— and leave me a little on hand, I could set about economizing in our way of living, and by and by my practice might look up. If you will wait a moment, Mr. Lydgate, I will draw a check to that amount. I am aware that help, to be effectual in these cases, should be thorough." While Bulstrode wrote, Lydgate turned to the window thinking of his home, thinking of his life with its good start saved from frustration its good purposes still unbroken.' "'You can give me a note of hand for this, Mr. Lydgate,' said the banker, advancing towards him with the cheque, and by and by, I hope, you may be in circumstances gradually to repay me. Meanwhile, I have pleasure in thinking that you will be released from further difficulty. "'I am deeply obliged to you,' said Lydgate you have restored to me the prospect of working with some happiness and some chance of good. It appeared to him a very natural movement in Bulstrode that he should have reconsidered his refusal. It corresponded with the more munificent side of his character. But as he put his hack into a canter, that he might get the sooner home, and tell the good news to Rosamond, and get cash at the bank to pay over to Dover's agent, there crossed his mind— with an unpleasant impression, as, from a dark-winged flight of evil augury across his vision, the thought of that contrast in himself which a few months had brought, that he should be overjoyed at being under a strong personal obligation, that he should be overjoyed at getting money for himself from Bulstrode. The banker felt that he had done something to nullify one cause of uneasiness, and yet he was scarcely the easier. He did not measure the quantity of diseased motive which had made him wish for Lydgate's good will, but the quantity was nonetheless actively there, like an irritating agent in his blood. A man vows, and yet will not cast away the means of breaking his vow. Is it that he distinctly means to break it? Not at all, but the desires which tend to break it are at work in him dimly, and make their way into his imagination and relax his muscles in the very moments when he is telling himself over again the reasons for his vow. Raffles, recovering quickly, returning to the free use of his odious powers. How could Bulstrode wish for that? Raffles dead was the image that brought release, and, indirectly, he prayed for that way of release, beseeching that, if it were possible, the rest of his days here below might be freed from the threat of an ignominy which would break him utterly as an instrument of God's service. Lydgate's opinion was not on the side of promise that his prayer would be fulfilled, and as the day advanced Bulstrode felt himself getting irritated at the persistent life in this man, whom he would fain have seen sinking into the silence of death. Imperious Will stirred murderous impulses towards this brute life, over which Will, by itself, had no power. He said inwardly that he was getting too much worn. He would not sit up with the patient to-night, but leave him to Mrs. Abel, who, if necessary, could call her husband. At six o'clock, Raffles, having had only fitful perturbed snatches of sleep, from which he waked with fresh restlessness and perpetual cries that he was sinking away, Bulstrode began to administer the opium according to Lydgate's directions. At the end of half an hour or more he called Mrs. Abel and told her that he found himself unfit for further watching. He must now consign the patient to her care, and he proceeded to repeat to her Lydgate's directions as to the quantity of each dose. Mrs. Abel had not before known anything of Lydgate's prescriptions. She had simply prepared and brought whatever Bulstrode ordered, and had done what he had pointed out to her. She began to ask what else she should do besides administering the opium. "'Nothing at present, except the offer of the soup or the soda-water. You can come to me for further directions. Unless there is any important change, I shall not come into the room again to-night.' "'You will ask your husband for help, if necessary. "'I must go to bed early.' "'You've much need, sir, I'm sure,' said Mrs. Abel, "'and to take something more strengthening than what you've done.' Bulstrode went away now with an anxiety as to what Raffles might say in his raving, which had taken on a muttering incoherence not likely to create any dangerous belief. At any rate, he must risk this. He went down to the wainscoted parlour first— and began to consider whether he would not have his horse saddled and go home by the moonlight, and give up caring for earthly consequences. Then he wished that he had begged Lydgate to come again that evening. Perhaps he might deliver a different opinion, and think that Raffles was getting into a less hopeful state. Should he send for Lydgate? If Raffles really were getting worse, and slowly dying— Bulstrode felt that he could go to bed and sleep in gratitude to Providence. But was he worse? Lydgate might come and simply say that he was going on as expected, and predict that he would by and by fall into a good sleep and get well. What was the use of sending for him? Bulstrode shrank from that result. No ideas or opinions could hinder him from seeing the one probability to be that Raffles recovered would be just the same man as before, with his strength as a tormentor renewed, obliging him to drag away his wife to spend her years apart from her friends and native place, carrying an alienating suspicion against him in her heart. He had sat an hour and a half in this conflict by the firelight only, when a sudden thought made him rise and light the bed-candle which he had brought down with him, The thought was that he had not told Mrs. Abel when the doses of opium must cease. He took hold of the candlestick, but stood motionless for a long while. She might already have given him more than Lydgate had prescribed. But it was excusable in him that he should forget part of an order, in his present wearied condition. He walked upstairs, candle in hand, not knowing whether he should straightway enter his own room and go to bed, or turn to the patient's room and rectify his omission. He paused in the passage, with his face turned towards Raffle's room, and he could hear him moaning and murmuring. He was not asleep then. Who could know that Lydgate's prescription would not be better disobeyed than followed, since there was still no sleep? He turned into his own room. Before he had quite undressed, Mrs. Abel rapped at the door. He opened it an inch, so that he could hear her speak low. "'If you please, sir, should I have no brandy nor nothing to give the poor greeter? He feels sinking away, and nothing else will he swallow, and but little strength in it, if he did, only the opium. And he says more and more he's sinking down through the earth.' To her surprise, Mr. Bulstrode did not answer. A struggle was going on within him. "'I think he must die for want of support if he goes on in that way. When I nursed my poor master, Mr. Robison, I had to give him port wine and brandy constant, and a big glass at a time,' added Mrs. Abel, with a touch of remonstrance in her tone. But again Mr. Bulstrode did not answer immediately, and she continued— it's not a time to spare when people are at death's door nor would you wish it sir i'm sure else i should give him our own bottle o rum as we keep by us but a sitter up so as you've been and doing everything as laid in your power here a key was thrust through the inch of doorway and mr bulstrode said huskily that is the key of the wine-cooler you will find plenty of brandy there early in the morning about six Mr. Bulstrode rose and spent some time in prayer. Does any one suppose that private prayer is necessarily candid, necessarily goes to the roots of action? Private prayer is inaudible speech, and speech is representative. Who can represent himself just as he is, even in his own reflections? Bulstrode had not yet unraveled in his thought the confused promptings of the last four-and-twenty hours. He listened in the passage and could hear hard, stertorous breathing. Then he walked out in the garden and looked at the early rime on the grass and fresh spring leaves. When he re-entered the house, he felt startled at the sight of Mrs. Abel. "'How is your patient? Asleep, I think,' he said, with an attempt at cheerfulness in his tone." He's gone very deep, sir, said Mrs. Abel. He went off gradual between three and four o'clock. Would you please to go and look at him? I thought it no harm to leave him. My man's gone afield and the little girl's see into the kettles. Bulstrode went up. At a glance he knew that Raffles was not in the sleep which brings revival, but in the sleep which streams deeper and deeper into the gulf of death. He looked round the room and saw a bottle with some brandy in it and the almost empty opium phial. He put the phial out of sight and carried the brandy-bottle downstairs with him, locking it again in the wine-cooler. While breakfasting he considered whether he should ride to Middlemarch at once or wait for Lydgate's arrival. He decided to wait and told Mrs. Abel that she might go about her work. He could watch in the bedchamber." As he sat there and beheld the enemy of his peace going irrevocably into silence, he felt more at rest than he had done for many months. His conscience was soothed by the unfolding wing of secrecy, which seemed just then like an angel sent down for his relief. He drew out his pocket-book to review various memoranda there as to the arrangements he had projected, and partly carried out in the prospect of quitting Middlemarch, and considered how far he would let them stand or recall them, now that his absence would be brief. Some economies which he felt desirable might still find a suitable occasion in his temporary withdrawal from management, and he hoped still that Mrs. Casaubon would take a large share in the expenses of the hospital. In that way the moments passed, until a change in the stertorous breathing was marked enough to draw his attention wholly to the bed and forced him to think of the departing life, which had once been subservient to his own, which he had once been glad to find base enough for him to act on as he would. It was his gladness, then, which impelled him now to be glad that the life was at an end. And who could say that the death of Raffles had been hastened? Who knew what would have saved him? Lydgate arrived at half-past ten, in time to witness the final pause of the breath. When he entered the room, Bulstrode observed a sudden expression in his face, which was not so much surprise as a recognition that he had not judged correctly. He stood by the bed in silence for some time, with his eyes turned on the dying man, but with that subdued activity of expression which showed that he was carrying on an inward debate. "'When did this change begin?' said he, looking at Bulstrode. "'I did not watch by him last night,' said Bulstrode. "'I was overworn, and left him under Mrs. Abel's care. "'She said that he sank into sleep between three and four o'clock. "'When I came in before eight he was nearly in this condition.' Lydgate did not ask another question, but watched in silence until he said, "'It's all over.' This morning Lydgate was in a state of recovered hope and freedom. He had set out on his work, with all his old animation, and felt himself strong enough to bear all the deficiencies of his married life. And he was conscious that Bulstrode had been a benefactor to him. But he was uneasy about this case. He had not expected it to terminate as it had done. Yet he hardly knew how to put a question on the subject to Bulstrode without appearing to insult him and if he examined the housekeeper, why, the man was dead. There seemed to be no use in implying that somebody's ignorance or imprudence had killed him. And, after all, he himself might be wrong. He and Bulstrode rode back to Middlemarch together, talking of many things, chiefly cholera and the chances of the reform bill in the House of Lords, and the firm resolve of the political unions. Nothing was said about Raffles, except that Bulstrode mentioned the necessity of having a grave for him in Lowick churchyard, and observed that, so far as he knew, the poor man had no connections, except Rigg, whom he had stated to be unfriendly towards him. On returning home, Lydgate had a visit from Mr. Fairbrother. The vicar had not been in town the day before, but the news that there was an execution in Lydgate's house had got to Lowick by the evening, having been carried by Mr. Spicer, shoemaker, and parish clerk, who had it from his brother, the respectable bell-hanger in Lowick Gate. Since that evening when Lydgate had come down from the billiard-room with Fred Vincy, Mr. Fairbrother's thoughts about him had been rather gloomy. Playing at the Green Dragon, once or oftener, might have been a trifle in another man, but in Lydgate it was one of several signs that he was getting unlike his former self he was beginning to do things for which he had formerly even an excessive scorn. Whatever certain dissatisfactions in marriage, which some silly tinklings of gossip had given him hints of, might have to do with this change, Mr. Fairbrother felt sure that it was chiefly connected with the debts which were being more and more distinctly reported, and he began to fear that any notion of Lydgate's having resources or friends in the background must be quite illusory. The rebuff he had met with in his first attempt to win Lydgate's confidence disinclined him to a second, but this news of the execution being actually in the house determined the vicar to overcome his reluctance. Lydgate had just dismissed a poor patient, in whom he was much interested, and he came forward to put out his hand, with an open cheerfulness which surprised Mr. Fairbrother. Could this, too, be a proud rejection of sympathy and help? Never mind, the sympathy and help should be offered. "'How are you, Lydgate? I came to see you because I had heard something which made me anxious about you,' said the vicar, in the tone of a good brother, only that there was no reproach in it. They were both seated by this time, and Lydgate answered immediately, "'I think I know what you mean.' You had heard that there was an execution in the house? Yes, is it true? It was true, said Lydgate, with an air of freedom, as if he did not mind talking about the affair now. But the danger is over, the debt is paid. I am out of my difficulties now. I shall be freed from debts, and able, I hope, to start afresh on a better plan. I am very thankful to hear it, said the vicar, falling back in his chair. "'and speaking with that low-toned quickness "'which often follows a removal of a load. "'I like that better than all the news in the Times. "'I confess I came to you with a heavy heart. "'Thank you for coming,' said Lydgate cordially. "'I can enjoy the kindness all the more because I am happier. "'I have certainly been a good deal crushed. "'I'm afraid I shall find the bruises still painful by and by,' he added. Smiling rather sadly, but just now I can only feel that the torture screw is off. Mr. Farebrother was silent for a moment, and then said earnestly, My dear fellow, let me ask you one question. Forgive me if I take a liberty. I don't believe you will ask anything that ought to offend me. Then, this is necessary to set my heart quite at rest. You have not, have you, in order to pay your debts, incurred another debt which may harass you worse hereafter? No, said Lydgate, coloring slightly. There is no reason why I should not tell you, since the fact is so, that the person to whom I am indebted is bulstrode. He has made me a very handsome advance, a thousand pounds, and he can afford to wait for repayment. "'Well, that is generous,' said Mr. Fairbrother, compelling himself to approve of the man whom he disliked. His delicate feeling shrank from dwelling even in his thought on the fact that he had always urged Lydgate to avoid any personal entanglement with Bulstrode. He added immediately, "'And Bulstrode must naturally feel an interest in your welfare,' after you have worked with him in a way which has probably reduced your income, instead of adding to it. I am glad to think that he has acted accordingly. Lydgate felt uncomfortable under these kindly suppositions. They made more distinct within him the uneasy consciousness which had shown its first dim stirrings only a few hours before, that Bulstrode's motives for his sudden beneficence following close upon the chillest indifference, might be merely selfish. He let the kindly suppositions pass. He could not tell the history of the loan, but it was more vividly present with him than ever, as well as the fact which the vicar delicately ignored, that this relation of personal indebtedness to Bulstrode was what he had once been most resolved to avoid. He began, instead of answering, to speak of his projected economies, and of his having come to look at his life from a different point of view. I shall set up a surgery, he said. I really think I made a mistaken effort in that respect, and if Rosamond will not mind, I shall take an apprentice. I don't like these things, but if one carries them out faithfully, they are not really lowering. I have had a severe galling to begin with. That will make the small rubs seem easy. Poor Lydgate! The, if Rosamond will not mind, which had fallen from him involuntarily as part of his thought, was a significant mark of the yoke he bore. But Mr. Fairbrother, whose hopes entered strongly into the same current with Lydgate's, and who knew nothing about him that could now raise a melancholy presentiment, Left him with affectionate congratulation. End of chapter seventy, chapter seventy one of Middlemarch by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Margaret Espion Clown. "'Twas in the bunch of grapes, where, indeed, you have a delight to sit, have you not?' "'Froth. "'I have so, because it is an open room and good for winter.' "'Clown. "'Why, very well, then. "'I hope here be truths. "'Measure for measure. Five days after the death of Raffles, Mr. Bambridge was standing at his leisure under the large archway leading into the yard of the Green Dragon.' He was not fond of solitary contemplation, but he had only just come out of the house, and any human figure standing at ease under the archway in the early afternoon was as certain to attract companionship as a pigeon which has found something worth pecking at. In this case there was no material object to feed upon, but the eye of reason saw a probability of mental sustenance in the shape of gossip. Mr. Hopkins, the meek-mannered draper opposite, was the first to act on this inward vision, being the more ambitious of a little masculine talk because his customers were chiefly women. Mr. Bambridge was rather curt to the draper, feeling that Hopkins was of course glad to talk to him, but that he was not going to waste much of his talk on Hopkins. Soon, however, there was a small cluster of more important listeners, who were either deposited from the passers-by or had sauntered to the spot expressly to see if there were anything going on at the green dragon and mr bambridge was finding it worth his while to say many impressive things about the fine studs he had been seeing and the purchases he had made on a journey in the north from which he had just returned gentlemen present were assured that when they could show him anything to cut out a blood mare a bay rising four which was to be seen at doncaster if they chose to go and look at it Mr. Bambridge would gratify them by being shot from here to Hereford. Also a pair of blacks which he was going to put into the break recalled vividly to his mind a pair which he had sold to Faulkner in nineteen for a hundred guineas, and which Faulkner had sold for a hundred and sixty two months later. Any gent who could disprove this statement being offered the privilege of calling Mr. Bambridge by a very ugly name until the exercise made his throat dry. When the discourse was at this point of animation came up Mr. Frank Hawley. He was not a man to compromise his dignity by lounging at the Green Dragon, but happening to pass along the High Street, and seeing Bambridge on the other side, he took some of his long strides across to ask the horse-dealer whether he had found the first-rate gig-horse which he had engaged to look for. Mr. Hawley was requested to wait until he had seen a grey selected at Bilkeley, if that did not meet his wishes to a hare, Bambridge did not know a horse when he saw it, which seemed to be the highest conceivable unlikelihood. Mr. Hawley, standing with his back to the street, was fixing a time for looking at the grey and seeing it tried, when a horseman passed slowly by. "'Bullstrode,' said two or three voices at once in a low tone, one of them, which was the draper's, respectfully prefixing the mister.' but nobody having more intention in this interjectural naming than if they had said the riverston coach when that vehicle appeared in the distance mr hawley gave a careless glance round at bulstrode's back but as bambridge's eyes followed it he made a sarcastic grimace by jingo that reminds me he began lowering his voice a little i picked up something else at bilkley besides your gig horse mr hawley i picked up a fine story about bulstrode "'Do you know how he came by his fortune? "'Any gentleman wantin' a bit of curious information, "'I can give it him free of expense. "'If everybody got their desserts, "'Bulstrode might have to say his prayers at Botany Bay.' "'What do you mean?' said Mr. Hawley, "'thrusting his hands into his pockets "'and pushing a little forward under the archway. "'If Bulstrode should turn out to be a rascal, "'Frank Hawley had a prophetic soul.' "'I had it from a party who was an old chum of Bulstrode's. "'I'll tell you where I first picked him up,' said Bambridge, with a sudden gesture of his forefinger. "'He was at Larcher's Sale, but I knew nothing of him then. "'He slipped through my fingers,' was after Bulstrode, no doubt. "'He tells me he can tap Bulstrode to any amount, knows all his secrets. "'However, he blabbed to me at Bilkley. he takes a stiff glass.' "'Damn if I think he meant to turn's king evidence. "'But he's that sort of bragging fellow. "'The bragging runs over hedge and ditch with him, "'till he'd brag of a spavin as if it'd fetch money. "'A man should know when to pull up.' Mr. Bambridge made this remark with an air of disgust, satisfied that his own bragging showed a fine sense of the marketable. "'What's the man's name? Where can he be found?' said Mr. Hawley. As to where he is to be found, I left him to it at the Saracen's head. But his name is Raffles.' "'Raffles!' exclaimed Mr. Hopkins. "'I furnished his funeral yesterday. He was buried at Lowick. Mr. Bulstrode followed him. A very decent funeral.' There was a strong sensation among the listeners. Mr. Bambridge gave an ejaculation in which brimstone was the mildest word— and mr hawley knitting his brows and bending his head forward exclaimed what where did the man die at stone court said the draper the housekeeper said he was a relation of the masters he came there ill on friday why it was on wednesday i took a glass with him interposed bambridge did any doctor attend him said mr hawley yes mr lydgate mr bulstrode sat up with him one night he died the third morning go on bambridge said mr hawley insistently what did this fellow say about bulstrode the group had already become larger the town clerk's presence being a guarantee that something worth listening to was going on there and mr bambridge delivered his narrative in the hearing of seven it was mainly what we know including the fact about will ladislaw with some local colour and circumstance added It was what Bulstrode had dreaded the betrayal of, and hoped to have buried forever with the corpse of Raffles. It was that haunting ghost of his earlier life which, as he rode past the archway of the Green Dragon, he was trusting that Providence had delivered him from. Yes, Providence. He had not confessed to himself yet that he had done anything in the way of contrivance to this end. He had accepted what seemed to have been offered. It was impossible to prove that he had done anything which hastened the departure of that man's soul. But this gossip about Bulstrode spread through Middlemarch like the smell of fire. Mr. Frank Hawley followed up his information by sending a clerk whom he could trust to Stone Court on a pretext of inquiring about Hay, but really to gather all that could be learned about Raffles and his illness from Mrs. Abel. In this way it came to his knowledge that Mr. Garth had carried the man to Stone Court in his gig, and Mr. Hawley, in consequence, took an opportunity of seeing Caleb, calling at his office, to ask whether he had time to undertake an arbitration if it were required, and then asking him incidentally about raffles. Caleb was betrayed into no word injurious to Bulstrode, beyond the fact which he was forced to admit— That he had given up acting for him within the last week. Mr. Hawley drew his inferences, and feeling convinced that Raffles had told his story to Garth, and that Garth had given up Bulstrode's affairs in consequence, said so a few hours later to Mr. Toller. The statement was passed on until it had quite lost the stamp of an inference, and was taken as information coming straight from Garth so that even a diligent historian might have concluded caleb to be the chief publisher of bulstrode's misdemeanours mr hawley was not slow to perceive that there was no handle for the law either in the revelations made by raffles or in the circumstances of his death he had himself ridden to lowick village that he might look at the register and talk over the whole matter with mr farebrother who was not more surprised than the lawyer that an ugly secret should have come to light about Bulstrode, though he had always had justice enough in him to hinder his antipathy from turning into conclusions. But while they were talking another combination was silently going forward in Mr. Fairbrother's mind, which foreshadowed what was soon to be loudly spoken of in Middlemarch as a necessary putting of two and two together. With the reasons which kept Bulstrode in dread of raffles, there flashed the thought that the dread might have something to do with his munificence towards his medical man, and though he resisted the suggestion that it had been consciously accepted in any way as a bribe, he had a foreboding that this complication of things might be of malignant effect on Lydgate's reputation. He perceived that Mr. Hawley knew nothing at present of the sudden relief from debt, and he himself was careful to glide away from all approaches towards the subject. Well, he said with a deep breath, wanting to wind up the illimitable discussion of what might have been, though nothing could be legally proven, it is a strange story. So our mercurial Ladislaw has a queer genealogy. A high-spirited young lady and a musical Polish patriot made a likely enough stock for him to spring from but I should never have suspected a grafting of the Jew pawnbroker. However, there's no knowing what a mixture will turn out beforehand. Some sorts of dirt serve to clarify. "'It's just what I should have expected,' said Mr. Hawley, mounting his horse. "'Any cursed alien blood, Jew, Corsican, or Gypsy.' "'I know he's one of your black sheep, Hawley.' But he really is a disinterested, unworldly fellow, said Mr. Fairbrother, smiling. Aye, aye, that is your whiggish twist, said Mr. Hawley, who had been in the habit of saying apologetically that Fairbrother was such a damned, pleasant, good-hearted fellow, you would mistake him for a Tory. Mr. Hawley rode home without thinking of Lydgate's attendance on raffles in any other light than as a piece of evidence on the side of Bulstrode, But the news that Lydgate had all at once become able not only to get rid of the execution in his house, but to pay all his debts in Middlemarch was spreading fast, gathering round it conjectures and comments which gave it new body and impetus, and soon filling the ears of other persons besides Mr. Hawley, who were not slow to see a significant relation between this sudden command of money and Bulstrode's desire to stifle the scandal of raffles that the money came from Bulstrode would infallibly have been guessed even if there had been no direct evidence of it, for it had beforehand entered into the gossip about Lydgate's affairs that neither his father-in-law nor his own family would do anything for him, and direct evidence was furnished not only by a clerk at the bank, but by innocent Mrs. Bulstrode herself, who mentioned the loan to Mrs. Plymdale, who mentioned it to her daughter-in-law of the House of Toller, who mentioned it generally. The business was felt to be so public and important that it required dinners to feed it, and many invitations were just then issued and accepted on the strength of this scandal concerning Bulstrode and Lydgate. Wives, widows, and single ladies took their work and went out to tea oftener than usual, and all public conviviality, from the green dragon to dollops, gathered a zest which could not be won from the question whether the Lords would throw out the reform bill. For hardly anybody doubted that some scandalous reason or other was at the bottom of Bulstrode's liberality to Lydgate. Mr. Hawley, indeed, in the first instance, invited a select party, including the two physicians, with Mr. Toller and Mr. Wrench, expressly to hold a close discussion as to the probabilities of Raffle's illness, reciting to them all the particulars which had been gathered from Mrs. Abel in connection with Lydgate's certificate, that the death was due to delirium tremens, and the medical gentlemen, who all stood undisturbedly on the old paths in relation to this disease, declared that they could see nothing in these particulars which could be transformed into a positive ground of suspicion but the moral grounds of suspicion remained, the strong motives Bulstrode clearly had for wishing to be rid of Raffles, and the fact that at this critical moment he had given Lydgate the help which he must for some time have known the need for, the disposition, moreover, to believe that Bulstrode would be unscrupulous, and the absence of any indisposition to believe that Lydgate might be as easily bribed as any other haughty-minded men when they have found themselves in want of money. Even if the money had been given merely to make him hold his tongue about the scandal of Bulstrode's earlier life, the fact threw an odious light on Lydgate, who had long been sneered at as making himself subservient to the banker for the sake of working himself into predominance, and discrediting the elder members of his profession. Hence, In spite of the negative as to any direct sign of guilt in relation to the death at Stone Court, Mr. Hawley's select party broke up with a sense that the affair had an ugly look. But this vague conviction of indeterminable guilt, which was enough to keep up much head-shaking and biting innuendo even among substantial professional seniors, had for the general mind all the superior power of mystery over fact. Everybody liked better to conjecture how the thing was than simply to know it, for conjecture soon became more confident than knowledge, and had a more liberal allowance for the incompatible. Even the more definite scandal concerning Bulstrode's earlier life was, for some minds, melted into the mass of mystery as so much lively metal to be poured out in dialogue, and to take such fantastic shapes as heaven pleased. This was the tone of thought chiefly sanctioned by Mrs. Dollop, the spirited landlady of the tankard in Slaughter Lane, who had often to resist the shallow pragmatism of customers disposed to think that their reports from the outer world were of equal force with what had come up in her mind. How had it been brought to her, she didn't know. But it was there before her, as if it had been scored with a chalk on the chimney-board, as Bulstrode should say. His inside was that black, as if the hairs of his head knowed the thoughts of his heart, he'd tear em up by the roots. "'That's odd,' said Mr. Limp, a meditative shoemaker, with weak eyes and a piping voice. "'Why—' I read in the trumpet that that was what the Duke of Wellington said when he turned his coat and went over to the Romans. "'Very like,' said Mrs. Dollop. "'If one rascal said it, it's more reason why another should. But hypocrite as he's been, and holdin' things with that high hand, as there was no parson in the country good enough for him, he was forced to take old Harry into his council, and old Harry's been too many for him.' ay ay he's a complice you can't send out of the country said mr crabbe the glazier who gathered much news and groped among it dimly but by what i can make out there's them says bulstrode was for runnin away for fear of being found out before now he'll be drove way whether or no said mr dill the barber who had just dropped in i shaved fletcher holly's clerk this mornin he's got a bad finger and he says they're all of one mind to get rid of bulstrode Mr. Thesiger is turned against him and wants him out of the parish. And there's gentlemen in this town that says they'd as soon a-dine with a fellow from the Hulks. And a deal sooner I would, says Fletcher, for what's more against one's stomach than a man coming and make himself bad company with his religion, and giving out as the Ten Commandments are not enough for him, and all the while he's worse than half the men at the treadmill? Fletcher said so himself.' "'It'll be a bad thing for the town, though, if Bulstrode's money goes out of it,' said Mr. Limp, quaveringly. "'Ah, there's better folks spend their money worse,' said a firm-voiced dyer, whose crimson hands looked out of keeping with his good-natured face. "'But he won't keep his money by what I can make out,' said the glazier. "'Don't they say as there's somebody can strip it off him? "'By what I can understand.' They could take every penny off him if they went to lying. "'No such thing,' said the barber, who felt himself a little above his company at Dollop's, but liked it none the worse. "'Fletcher says it's no such thing. He says they might prove over and over again whose child this young Ladislaw was, and they'd do no more than if they proved I came out of the Fens. He couldn't touch a penny.' "'Look you there now,' said Mrs. Dollop, indignantly. I thank the Lord he took my children to himself, if that's all the law can do for the motherless. Then by that it's a no use who your father and mother is. But as to listening to what one lawyer says without asking another, I wonder at a man of your cleverness, Mr. Dill. It's well known there's always two sides, if no more, else who'd go to law I should like to know. It's a poor tale, with all the law as there is up and down, if it's no use proving whose child you are. "'Fletcher may say that if he likes, but I say, don't Fletcher me!' Mr. Dill affected to laugh in a complimentary way at Mrs. Dollop, as a woman who was more than a match for the lawyers, being disposed to submit to such twitting from a landlady who had a long score against him. "'If they come to lying, and it's all true as folks say, there's more to be looked to nor money,' said the glazier. "'There's this poor creetur as is dead and gone, by what I can make out. "'He'd seen the day when he was a deal finer gentleman nor bulstrode.' "'Finer gentleman I'll warrant him,' said Mrs. Dollop, "'and a far personabler man by what I can hear. "'As I said when Mr. Baldwin, the tax-gatherer, comes in, "'a standin' where you sit, and says, "'Bulstrode got all his money as he brought into this town by thieving and swindling,' "'I said,' "'You don't make me no wiser, Mr. Baldwin. "'It set my blood a-creeping to look at him "'ever sin he came here into Slaughter Lane "'a-wantin to buy the house o'er my head. "'Folks don't look the colour o' the dough-tub "'and stare at you as if they wanted to see into your backbone for nothing. "'That was what I said, and Mr. Baldwin can bear me witness.' "'And in the rights of it, too,' said Mr. Crabb, "'for by what I can make out,' this raffles as they call him was a lusty fresh-coloured man as you'd wish to see and the best o company though dead he lies in lowick churchyard sure enough and by what i can understand there's them knows more than they should know about how he got there i'll believe you said mrs dollop with a touch of scorn at mr crabbe's apparent dimness when a man's been ticed to a lone house and there's them can pay for hospitals and nurses for half the countryside choose to be sitters up night and day and nobody to come near but a doctor as is known to stick at nothing and as poor as he can hang together and after that so flush a money as he can pay off mr biles the butcher as his bill has been running for the best o joints since last michaelmas was a twelvemonth i don't want anybody to come and tell me as there's been more going on nor the prayer book's got a service for i don't want to stand winkin and blinkin and thinkin mrs dollop looked around with the air of a landlady accustomed to dominate her company there was a chorus of adhesion from the more courageous but mr limp after taking a draught placed his flat hands together and pressed them hard between his knees looking down at them with blear-eyed contemplation, as if the scorching power of Mrs. Dollop's speech had quite dried up and nullified his wits until they could be brought round again by further moisture. "'Why shouldn't they dig the man up and have the crowner?' said the dyer. "'It's been done many and many's the time. If there's been foul play they might find it out.' "'Not they, Mr. Jonas,' said Mrs. Dollop emphatically. "'I know what doctors are.' They're a deal too cunning to be found out. And this Dr. Lydgate that's been for cutting up everybody before the breath was well out of their body. It's plain enough what use he wanted to make a-looking into respectable people's insides. He knows drugs, you may be sure, as you can neither smell nor see, neither before they're swallowed nor after. Why, I've seen drops myself ordered by Dr. Gambit, as is our club doctor and a good character, and has brought more live children into the world nor ever another in Middlemarch. I say, I've seen drops myself as made no difference whether they was in the glass or out, and have yet griped ye the next day. So I'll leave your own sense to judge. Don't tell me. All I say is, it's a mercy they didn't take this Dr. Lydgate on to our club. THERE'S MANY A MOTHER'S CHILD MIGHT A ROOT IT. The heads of this discussion at Dollops had been the common theme among all classes in the town, had been carried to Lowick Parsonage on one side and to Tipton Grange on the other, had come fully to the ears of the Vincy family, and had been discussed with sad reference to poor Harriet by all Mrs. Bulstrode's friends, before Lydgate knew distinctly why people were looking strangely at him and before Bulstrode himself suspected the betrayal of his secrets. He had not been accustomed to very cordial relations with his neighbors, and hence he could not miss the signs of cordiality. Moreover he had been taking journeys on business of various kinds, having now made up his mind that he need not quit Middlemarch, and feeling able, consequently, to determine on matters which he had before left in suspense. We will make a journey to Cheltenham in the course of a month or two, he had said to his wife. There are great spiritual advantages to be had in that town, along with the air and the waters, and six weeks there will be eminently refreshing to us. He really believed in the spiritual advantages, and meant that his life henceforth should be the more devoted because of those later sins which he represented to himself as hypothetic praying hypothetically for their pardon, if I have herein transgressed. As to the hospital, he avoided saying anything further to Lydgate, fearing to manifest a too sudden change of plans immediately on the death of Raffles. In his secret soul he believed that Lydgate suspected his orders to have been intentionally disobeyed, and suspecting this he must also suspect a motive but nothing had been betrayed to him as to the history of raffles, and Bulstrode was anxious not to do anything which would give emphasis to his undefined suspicions. As to any certainty that a particular method of treatment would either save or kill, Lydgate himself was constantly arguing against such dogmatism. He had no right to speak, and he had every motive for being silent. Hence, Bulstrode felt himself providentially secured. The only incident he had strongly winced under had been an occasional encounter with Caleb Garth, who, however, had raised his hat with mild gravity. Meanwhile, on the part of the principal townsmen, a strong determination was growing against him. A meeting was to be held in the town hall on a sanitary question which had risen into pressing importance by the occurrence of a cholera case in the town. Since the Act of Parliament, which had been hurriedly passed, authorizing assessments for sanitary measures, there had been a board for the superintendence of such measures appointed in Middlemarch, and much cleansing and preparation had been concurred in by Whigs and Tories. The question now was whether a piece of ground outside the town should be secured as a burial ground by means of assessment or by private subscription. The meeting was to be open, and almost everybody of importance in the town was expected to be there. Mr. Bulstrode was a member of the board, and just before twelve o'clock he started from the bank with the intention of urging the plan of private subscription. Under the hesitation of his projects, He had, for some time, kept himself in the background, and he felt that he should this morning resume his old position as a man of action and influence in the public affairs of the town, where he expected to end his days. Among the various persons going in the same direction he saw Lydgate, they joined, talked over the object of the meeting, and entered it together. It seemed that everybody of Mark had been earlier than they but there were still spaces left near the head of a large central table, and they made their way thither. Mr. Fairbrother sat opposite, not far from Mr. Hawley. All the medical men were there. Mr. Thesiger was in the chair, and Mr. Brook of Tipton was on his right hand. Lydgate noticed a peculiar interchange of glances when he and Bulstrode took their seats. After the business had been fully opened by the chairman, who pointed out the advantages of purchasing by subscription a piece of ground large enough to be ultimately used as a general cemetery, Mr. Bulstrode, whose rather subdued and fluent voice the town was used to at meetings of this sort, rose and asked leave to deliver his opinion. Lydgate could see again the peculiar interchange of glances before Mr. Hawley started up, and said in his firm, resonant voice, "'Mr. Chairman! I request that before any one delivers his opinion on this point, I may be permitted to speak on a question of public feeling, which not only by myself, but by many gentlemen present, is regarded as preliminary. Mr. Hawley's mode of speech, even when public decorum repressed his awful language, was formidable in its curtness and self possession. Mr. Thesiger sanctioned the request. Mr. Bulstrode sat down and mr hawley continued in what i have to say mr chairman i am not speaking simply on my own behalf i am speaking with a concurrence and at the express request of no fewer than eight of my fellow townsmen who are immediately around us it is our united sentiment that mr bulstrode should be called upon and i do now call upon him to resign public positions which he holds not simply as a taxpayer but as a gentleman among gentlemen. There are practices and there are acts which, owing to circumstances, the law cannot visit, though they may be worse than many things which are legally punishable. Honest men and gentlemen, if they don't want the company of people who perpetrate such acts, have got to defend themselves as best they can, and that is what I and the friends whom i may call my clients in this affair are determined to do i don't say that mr bulstrode has been guilty of shameful acts but i call upon him either publicly to deny and confute the scandalous statements made against him by a man now dead and who died in his house the statement that he was for many years engaged in nefarious practices and that he won his fortune by dishonest procedures, or else to withdraw from positions which could only have been allowed him as a gentleman among gentlemen. All eyes in the room were turned on Mr. Bulstrode, who, since the first mention of his name, had been going through a crisis of feeling almost too violent for his delicate frame to support. Lydgate, who himself was undergoing a shock as from the terrible practical interpretation of some faint augury, felt, nevertheless, that his own movement of resentful hatred was checked by that instinct of the healer, which thinks first of bringing rescue or relief to the sufferer, when he looked at the shrunken misery of Bulstrode's livid face. The quick vision that his life was, after all, a failure, that he was a dishonoured man, and must quail before the glance of those towards whom he had habitually assumed the attitude of a reprover, that God had disowned him before men, and left him unscreened to the triumphant scorn of those who were glad to have their hatred justified. The sense of utter futility in that equivocation with his conscience, in dealing with the life of his accomplice, an equivocation which now turned venomously upon him with the full-grown fang of a discovered lie. All this rushed through him like the agony of terror which fails to kill, and leaves the ears still open to the returning wave of execration. The sudden sense of exposure after the re-established sense of safety came not to the coarse organization of a criminal, but to the susceptible nerve of a man whose intensest being lay in such mastery and predominance as the conditions of his life had shaped for him. But in that intense being lay the strength of reaction. Through all his bodily infirmity there ran a tenacious nerve of ambitious self-preserving will, which had continually leaped out like a flame, scattering all doctrinal fears, and which, even while he sat an object of compassion for the merciful, was beginning to stir and glow under his ashy paleness. Before the last words were out of Mr. Hawley's mouth, Bulstrode felt that he should answer, and that his answer would be a retort. He dared not get up and say, I am not guilty, the whole story is false. Even if he had dared this, it would have seemed to him, under his present keen sense of betrayal, as vain as to pull for covering to his nakedness a frail rag which would rend at every little strain. For a few moments there was total silence, while every man in the room was looking at Bulstrode. He sat perfectly still, leaning hard against the back of his chair. He could not venture to rise, and when he began to speak he pressed his hands upon the seat on each side of him. But his voice was perfectly audible, though hoarser than usual and his words were distinctly pronounced, though he paused between sentence as if short of breath. He said, turning first towards Mr. Thesiger and then looking at Mr. Hawley, "'I protest before you, sir, as a Christian minister, against the sanction of proceedings towards me which are dictated by virulent hatred. Those who are hostile to me, are glad to believe any libel uttered by a loose tongue against me, and their consciences become strict against me. Say that the evil speaking of which I am to be made the victim accuses me of malpractices." Here Bulstrode's voice rose and took on a more biting accent, till it seemed a low cry. Who? shall be my accuser not men whose lives are unchristian nay scandalous not men who themselves use low instruments to carry out their ends whose profession is a tissue of chicanery who have been spending their income on their own sensual enjoyments while well, i have been devoting mine to advance the best objects with regard to this life and the next after the word chicanery there was a growing noise half of murmurs and half of hisses while four persons started up at once mr hawley mr toller mr chitchley and mr hackbutt but mr hawley's outburst was instantaneous and left the others behind in silence "'If you mean me, sir, I call you and every one else to the inspection of my professional life. As to Christian or unchristian, I repudiate your canting, palavering Christianity. And as to the way in which I spend my income, it is not my principle to maintain thieves and cheat offspring of their due inheritance in order to support religion and set myself up as a saintly killjoy.' I affect no niceness of conscience. I have not found any nice standards necessary to measure your actions by, sir. And I again call upon you to enter into satisfactory explanations concerning the scandals against you, or else to withdraw from posts in which we, at any rate, decline you as a colleague. I say, sir, we decline to cooperate with a man whose character is not cleared from infamous lights cast upon it not only by reports but by recent actions allow me mr hawley said the chairman and mr hawley still fuming bowed half impatiently and sat down with his hands thrust deep in his pockets mr bulstrode it is not desirable i think to prolong the present discussion said mr Thesiger, turning to the pallid trembling man I must so far concur with what has fallen from Mr. Hawley in expression of a general feeling, as to think it due to your Christian profession that you should clear yourself, if possible, from unhappy aspersions. I, for my part, should be willing to give you full opportunity and hearing, but I must say that your present attitude is painfully inconsistent with those principles which you have sought to identify yourself with, and for the honor of which I am bound to care. I recommend you at present, as your clergyman, and one who hopes for your reinstatement in respect, to quit the room and avoid further hindrance to business. Bulstrode, after a moment's hesitation, took his hat from the floor and slowly rose, but he grasped the corner of the chair so totteringly that Lydgate felt sure there was not strength enough in him to walk away without support. What could he do? He could not see a man sink close to him for want of help. He rose and gave his arm to Bulstrode, and in that way led him out of the room. Yet this act, which might have been one of gentle duty and pure compassion, was at this moment unspeakably bitter to him. It seemed as if he were putting his sign-manual to that association of himself with Bulstrode, of which he now saw the full meaning as it must have presented itself to other minds. He now felt the conviction that this man, who was leaning tremblingly on his arm, had given him the thousand pounds as a bribe, and that somehow the treatment of raffles had been tampered with from an evil motive. The inferences were closely linked enough. The town knew of the loan, believed it to be a bribe, and believed that he took it as a bribe. Poor Lydgate, his mind struggling under the terrible clutch of this revelation, was all the while morally forced to take Mr. Bulstrode to the bank, send a man off for his carriage, and wait to accompany him home. Meanwhile the business of the meeting was dispatched, and fringed off into eager discussion among various groups concerning this affair of Bulstrode and Lydgate. Mr. Brooke, who had before heard only imperfect hints of it, and was very uneasy that he had gone a little too far, in countenancing Bulstrode, now got himself fully informed, and felt some benevolent sadness in talking to Mr. Fairbrother about the ugly light in which Lydgate had come to be regarded. Mr. Fairbrother was going to walk back to Lowick. "'Step into my carriage,' said Mr. Brooke. "'I'm going round to see Mrs. Casaubon. She has come back from Yorkshire last night. She will like to see me, you know.' So they drove along. Mr. Brook chatting with good-natured hope that there had not really been anything black in Lydgate's behavior, a young fellow whom he had seen to be quite above the common mark, when he brought a letter from his uncle Sir Godwin. Mr. Fairbrother said little. He was deeply mournful. With a keen perception of human weakness, he could not be confident that under the pressure of humiliating needs Lydgate had not fallen below himself, when the carriage drove up to the gate of the manor, Dorothea was out on the gravel and came to greet them. "'Well, my dear,' said Mr. Brooke, "'we have just come from a meeting—a sanitary meeting, you know.' "'Was Mr. Lydgate there?' said Dorothea, who looked full of health and animation, and stood with her head bare under the gleaming April lights. "'I want to see him and have a great consultation with him about the hospital. I have engaged with Mr. Bulstrode to do so.' oh my dear said mr brooke we have been hearing bad news bad news you know they walked through the garden towards the churchyard gate mr fairbrother wanting to go on to the parsonage and dorothea heard the whole sad story she listened with deep interest and begged to hear twice over the facts and impressions concerning lydgate after a short silence pausing at the churchyard gate and addressing Mr. Fairbrother, she said energetically, You don't believe that Mr. Lydgate is guilty of anything base. I will not believe it. Let us find out the truth and clear him. End of chapter 71 Chapter 72 of Middlemarch by George Eliot this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by margaret espayette book eight sunset and sunrise full souls are double mirrors making still an endless vista of fair things before repeating things behind dorothea's impetuous generosity which would have leaped at once to the vindication of lydgate from the suspicion of having accepted money as a bribe underwent a melancholy check when she came to consider all the circumstances of the case by the light of mr fairbrother's experience it's a delicate matter to touch he said how can we begin to inquire into it it must be either publicly by setting the magistrate and coroner to work or privately by questioning lydgate As to the first proceeding, there is no solid ground to go upon, else Hawley would have adopted it. And as to opening the subject with Lydgate, I confess I should shrink from it. He would probably take it as a deadly insult. I have more than once experienced the difficulty of speaking to him on personal matters. And one should know the truth about his conduct beforehand, to feel very confident of a good result i feel convinced that his conduct has not been guilty i believe that people are almost always better than their neighbors think they are said dorothea some of her intensest experience in the last two years had set her mind strongly in opposition to any unfavorable construction of others and for the first time she felt rather discontented with mr fairbrother she disliked this cautious wane of consequences, instead of an ardent faith in efforts of justice and mercy, which would conquer by their emotional force. Two days afterwards he was dining at the manor with her uncle and the Chettams, and when the dessert was standing uneaten, the servants were out of the room, and Mr. Brooke was nodding in a nap, she returned to the subject with renewed vivacity. Mr. Lydgate would understand that if his friends hear a calumny about him, their first wish must be to justify him. What do we live for if it is not to make life less difficult to each other? I cannot be indifferent to the troubles of a man who advised me in my trouble, and attended me in my illness. Dorothea's tone and manner were not more energetic than they had been when she was at the head of her uncle's table nearly three years before, and her experience since had given her more right to express a decided opinion but sir james chettam was no longer the diffident and acquiescent suitor he was the anxious brother-in-law with a devout admiration for his sister but with a constant alarm lest she should fall under some new illusion almost as bad as marrying casaubon he smiled much less when he said exactly It was more often an introduction to a dissentient opinion than in those submissive bachelor days, and Dorothea found to her surprise that she had to resolve not to be afraid of him, all the more because he was really her best friend. He disagreed with her now. "'But, Dorothea,' he said remonstrantly, "'you can't undertake to manage a man's life for him in that way. Lydgate must know.' at least he will soon come to know how he stands. If he can clear himself he will. He must act for himself.' "'I think his friends must wait till they find an opportunity,' added Mr. Fairbrother. "'It is possible. I have often felt so much weakness in myself that I can conceive even a man of honourable disposition, such as I have always believed Lydgate to be, succumbing to such a temptation as that of accepting money which was offered more or less indirectly as a bribe to ensure his silence about scandalous facts long gone by i say i can conceive this if he were under the pressure of hard circumstances if he had been harassed as i feel sure lydgate has been i would not believe anything worse of him except under stringent proof but there is the terrible nemesis following on some errors that it is always possible for those who like it to interpret them into a crime there is no proof in favour of the man outside his own consciousness and assertion oh how cruel said dorothea clasping her hands and would you not like to be the one person who believed in that man's innocence, if the rest of the world belied him? Besides, there is a man's character beforehand to speak for him." "'But, my dear Mrs. Casaubon," said Mr. Fairbrother, smiling gently at her ardour, "'character is not cut in marble. It is not something solid and unalterable. It is something living and changing.' and may become diseased as our bodies do. "'Then it may be rescued and healed,' said Dorothea. "'I should not be afraid of asking Mr. Lydgate to tell me the truth, that I might help him. Why should I be afraid? Now that I am not to have the land, James, I might do as Mr. Bulstrode proposed, and take his place in providing for the hospital, and I have to consult Mr. Lydgate, to know thoroughly what are the prospects of doing good by keeping up the present plans. There is the best opportunity in the world for me to ask his confidence, and he would be able to tell me things which might make all the circumstances clear. Then we would all stand by him and bring him out of his trouble. People glorify all sorts of bravery, except the bravery they might show on behalf of their nearest neighbors dorothea's eyes had a moist brightness in them and the changed tones of her voice roused her uncle who began to listen it is true that a woman may venture on some efforts of sympathy which would hardly succeed if we men undertook them said mr fairbrother almost converted by dorothea's ardour surely a woman is bound to be cautious "'And listen to those who know the world better than she does,' said Sir James, with his little frown. "'Whatever you do in the end, Dorothea, you should really keep back at present, and not volunteer any meddling with this bulstrode business. We don't know yet what may turn up. "'You must agree with me,' he ended, looking at Mr. Fairbrother. "'I do think it would be better to wait,' said the latter. "'Yes, yes, my dear,' said Mr. Brooke not quite knowing at what point the discussion had arrived but coming up to it with a contribution which was generally appropriate it is easy to go too far you know you must not let your ideas run away with you and as to being in a hurry to put money into schemes it won't do you know garth has drawn me in uncommonly with repairs draining that sort of thing i'm uncommonly out of pocket with one thing or another I must pull up. As for you, Chettam, you are spending a fortune on those oak fences round your domain. Dorothea, submitting uneasily to this discouragement, went with Celia into the library, which was her usual drawing-room. Now, Dodo, do listen to what James says, said Celia, else you will be getting into a scrape. You always did, and you always will, when you set about doing as you please. And I think it is a mercy now, after all, that you have got James to think for you. He lets you have your plans, only he hinders you from being taken in. And that is the good of having a brother instead of a husband. A husband would not let you have your plans. As if I wanted a husband, said Dorothea. I only want not to have my feelings checked at every turn.' Mrs. Casaubon was still undisciplined enough to burst into angry tears. "'Now, really, Dodo,' said Celia, with rather a deeper guttural than usual, "'you are contradictory. First one thing, and then another. You used to submit to Mr. Casaubon quite shamefully. I think you would have given up ever coming to see me if he had asked you.' of course i submitted to him because it was my duty it was my feeling for him said dorothea looking through the prism of her tears then why can't you think it your duty to submit a little to what james wishes said celia with a sense of stringency in her argument because he only wishes what is for your own good and of course men know best about everything except what women know better Dorothea laughed and forgot her tears. Well, I mean about babies and those things," explained Celia. "I should not give up to James when I knew he was wrong, as you used to do to Mister Casaubon." Chapter seventy-two. Chapter seventy-three of Middlemarch by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. RECORDING BY MARGARET ESPAYAT PITY THE LADEN ONE THIS WANDERING WOE MAY VISIT YOU AND ME When Lydgate had allayed Mrs. Bulstrode's anxiety by telling her that her husband had been seized with faintness at the meeting, but that he trusted soon to see him better and would call again the next day, unless she sent for him earlier, he went directly home, got on his horse, And rode three miles out of the town for the sake of being out of reach. He felt himself becoming violent and unreasonable, as if raging under the pain of stings. He was ready to curse the day on which he had come to Middlemarch. Everything that had happened to him there seemed a mere preparation for this hateful fatality, which had come as a blight on his honorable ambition and must make even people who had only vulgar standards regard his reputation as irrevocably damaged. In such moments a man can hardly escape being unloving. Lydgate thought of himself as the sufferer, and of others as the agents who had injured his lot. He had meant everything to turn out differently, and others had thrust themselves into his life and thwarted his purposes. His marriage seemed like an unmitigated calamity, and he was afraid of going to Rosamond before he had vented himself in this solitary rage, lest the mere sight of her should exasperate him and make him behave unwarrantably. There are episodes in most men's lives in which their highest qualities can only cast a deterring shadow over the objects that fill their inward vision. Lydgate's tender-heartedness was present just then only as a dread lest he should offend against it, not as an emotion that swayed him to tenderness. For he was very miserable. Only those who know the supremacy of the intellectual life, the life which has a seed of ennobling thought and purpose within it, can understand the grief of one who falls from that serene activity into the absorbing, soul-wasting struggle with worldly annoyances. How was he to live on, without vindicating himself among people who suspected him of baseness? How could he go silently away from Middlemarch as if he were retreating before a just condemnation? And yet how was he to set about vindicating himself? For that scene at the meeting, which he had just witnessed, although it had told him no particulars, had been enough to make his own situation thoroughly clear to him. Bulstrode had been in dread of scandalous disclosures on the part of Raffles. Lydgate could now construct all the probabilities of the case. He was afraid of some betrayal in my hearing. All he wanted was to bind me to him by a strong obligation. That was why he passed on a sudden from hardness to liberality." and he may have tampered with the patient, he may have disobeyed my orders. I fear he did. But whether he did or not, the world believes that he somehow or other poisoned the man, and that I winked at the crime if I didn't help in it. And yet, and yet he may not be guilty of the last offence, and it is just possible that the change towards me may have been a genuine relenting, the effect of second thoughts just as he alleged what we call the just possible is sometimes true and the thing we find it easier to believe is grossly false in his last dealings with this man bulstrode may have kept his hands pure in spite of my suspicion to the contrary there was a benumbing cruelty in his position Even if he renounced every other consideration than that of justifying himself, if he met shrugs, cold glances, and avoidance as an accusation, and made a public statement of all the facts as he knew them, who would be convinced? It would be plain the part of a fool to offer his own testimony on behalf of himself, and say, I did not take the money as a bribe. The circumstances would always be stronger than his assertion and besides, to come forward and tell everything about himself must include declarations about Bulstrode, which would darken the suspicions of others against him. He must tell that he had not known of Raffles' existence when he first mentioned his pressing need of money to Bulstrode, and that he took the money innocently as a result of that communication, not knowing that a new motive for the loan might have arisen on his being called in to this man, and, after all, the suspicion of Bulstrode's motives might be unjust. But then came the question whether he should have acted in precisely the same way if he had not taken the money. Certainly, if Raffles had continued alive and susceptible of further treatment when he arrived, and he had then imagined any disobedience to his orders on the part of Bulstrode, he would have made a strict inquiry and if his conjecture had been verified, he would have thrown up the case in spite of his recent heavy obligation. But if he had not received any money, if Bulstrode had never revoked his cold recommendation of bankruptcy, would he, Lydgate, have abstained from all inquiry even on finding the man dead? Would the shrinking from an insult to Bulstrode, Would the dubiousness of all medical treatment and the argument that his own treatment would pass for the wrong, with most members of his profession, have had just the same force or significance with him? That was the uneasy corner of Lydgate's consciousness while he was reviewing the facts and resisting all reproach. If he had been independent, this matter of a patient's treatment and the distinct rule that he must do or see done that which he believed best for the life committed to him, would have been the point on which he would have been the sturdiest. As it was, he had rested in the consideration that disobedience to his orders, however it might have arisen, could not be considered a crime, that, in the dominant opinion, obedience to his orders was just as likely to be fatal, and that the affair was simply one of etiquette whereas, again and again, in his time of freedom, he had denounced the perversion of pathological doubt into moral doubt, and had said, The purest experiment in treatment may still be conscientious. My business is to take care of life, and to do the best I can think of for it. Science is properly more scrupulous than dogma. Dogma gives a charter to mistake— but the very breath of science is a contest with mistake, and must keep the conscience alive. Alas! the scientific conscience had got into the debasing company of money obligation and selfish respects. Is there a medical man of them all in Middlemarch who would question himself as I do, said poor Lydgate, with a renewed outburst of rebellion against the oppression of his lot, and yet they will all feel warranted in making a wide space between me and them, as if I were a leper. My practice and my reputation are utterly damned, I can see that. Even if I could be cleared by valid evidence, it would make little difference to the blessed world here. I have been set down as tainted, and should be cheapened to them all the same." Already there had been abundant signs which had hitherto puzzled him, that just when he had been paying off his debts and getting cheerfully on his feet, the townsmen were avoiding him or looking strangely at him, and in two instances it came to his knowledge that patients of his had called in another practitioner. The reasons were too plain now. The general blackballing had begun." No wonder that in Lydgate's energetic nature the sense of a hopeless misconstruction easily turned into a dogged resistance. The scowl which occasionally showed itself on his square brow was not a meaningless accident. Already when he was re-entering the town after that ride, taken in the first hours of stinging pain, he was setting his mind on remaining in Middlemarch in spite of the worst that could be done against him he would not retreat before calumny, as if he submitted to it. He would face it to the utmost, and no act of his should show that he was afraid. It belonged to the generosity as well as defiant force of his nature that he resolved not to shrink from showing to the full his sense of obligation to Bulstrode. It was true that the association with this man had been fatal to him, true that if he had had the thousand pounds still in his hands with all his debts unpaid he would have returned the money to bulstrode and taken beggary rather than the rescue which had been sullied with the suspicion of a bribe for remember he was one of the proudest among the sons of men nevertheless he would not turn away from this crushed fellow mortal whose aid he had used and made a pitiful effort to get acquittal for himself "'by howling against another. "'I shall do as I think right, and explain to nobody. "'They will try to starve me out, but—' "'He was going on with an obstinate resolve, "'but he was getting near home, "'and the thought of Rosamond urged itself again "'into that chief place from which it had been thrust "'by the agonized struggles of wounded honor and pride. "'How would Rosamond take it all?' Here was another weight of chain to drag, and poor Lydgate was in a bad mood for bearing her dumb mastery. He had no impulse to tell her the trouble which must soon be common to them both. He preferred waiting for the incidental disclosure which events must soon bring about. End of Chapter 73 CHAPTER SEVENTY-FOUR OF MIDDLEMARCH BY GEORGE Eliot. THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. RECORDING BY MARGARET ESPAYAT. MERCIFULLY GRANT THAT WE MAY GROW AGED TOGETHER. BOOK OF TOBIT. MARRIAGE PRAYER. In Middlemarch a wife could not long remain ignorant that the town held a bad opinion of her husband. No feminine intimate might carry her friendship so far as to make a plain statement to the wife of the unpleasant fact known or believed about her husband. But when a woman with her thoughts much at leisure got them suddenly employed on something grievously disadvantageous to her neighbors, various moral impulses were called into play which tended to stimulate utterance. Candor was one. To be candid, in Middlemarch phraseology, meant to use an early opportunity of letting your friends know that you did not take a cheerful view of their capacity, their conduct, or their position, and a robust candor never waited to be asked for its opinion. Then again there was the love of truth, a wide phrase, but meaning in this relation a lively objection to seeing a wife look happier than her husband's character warranted, or manifest too much satisfaction in her lot. The poor thing should have some hint given her, that if she knew the truth she would have less complacency in her bonnet, and in light dishes for a supper-party. Stronger than all there was the regard for a friend's moral improvement, sometimes called her soul, which was likely to be benefited by remarks tending to gloom, uttered with the accompaniment of pensive staring at the furniture, and a manner implying that the speaker would not tell what was on her mind from regard to the feelings of her hearer. On the whole, one might say that an ardent charity was at work setting the virtuous mind to make a neighbour unhappy for her good. There were hardly any wives in Middlemarch whose matrimonial misfortunes would, in different ways, be likely to call forth more of this moral activity than Rosamond and her aunt Bulstrode. Mrs. Bulstrode was not an object of dislike and had never consciously injured any human being. Men had always thought her a handsome, comfortable woman, and had reckoned it among the signs of Bulstrode's hypocrisy that he had chosen a red-blooded Vincy instead of a ghastly and melancholy person suited to his low esteem for earthly pleasure. When the scandal about her husband was disclosed, they remarked of her, "'Ah, poor woman! She's as honest as the day. She never suspected anything wrong in him. You may depend on it. Women, who were intimate with her, talked together much of poor Harriet, imagined what her feelings must be when she came to know everything, and conjectured how much she had already come to know. There was no spiteful disposition towards her. Rather, there was a busy benevolence anxious to ascertain what it would be well for her to feel and do under the circumstances which of course kept the imagination occupied with her character and history from the times when she was Harriet Vincy till now. With the review of Mrs. Bulstrode and her position, it was inevitable to associate Rosamond, whose prospects were under the same blight with her aunts. Rosamond was more severely criticized and less pitied, though she, too, as one of the good old Vincy family, who had always been known in Middlemarch, was regarded as a victim to marriage with an interloper. The Vincys had their weaknesses, but then they lay on the surface. There was never anything bad to be found out concerning them. Mrs. Bulstrode was vindicated from any resemblance to her husband. Harriet's faults were her own. "'She has always been showy,' said Mrs. Hackbutt, making tea for a small party. "'Though she has got into the way of putting her religion forward,' to conform to her husband she has tried to hold her head up above middlemarch by making it known that she invites clergymen and heaven knows who from riverston and those places we can hardly blame her for that said mrs sprague because few of the best people in the town cared to associate with bulstrode and she must have somebody to sit down at her table mr Thesiger has always countenanced him said mrs hackbutt "'I think he must be sorry now.' "'But he was never fond of him in his heart. "'That every one knows,' said Mrs. Tom Toller. "'Mr. Thesiger never goes into extremes. "'He keeps to the truth in what is evangelical. "'It is only clergymen like Mr. Tyke "'who want to use the dissenting hymn-books "'and that low kind of religion "'who ever found Bulstrode to their taste.' "'I understand. "'Mr. Tyke is in great distress about him,' "'said Mrs. Hackbutt and well he may be they say the bulstrodes have half kept the tyke family and of course it is a discredit to his doctrines said mrs sprague who was elderly and old-fashioned in her opinions people will not make a boast of being methodistical in middlemarch for a good while to come i think we must not set down people's bad actions to their religion said falcon-faced mrs who had been listening hitherto. "'Oh, my dear, we are forgetting,' said Mrs. Sprague. "'We ought not to be talking of this before you.' "'I'm sure I have no reason to be partial,' said Mrs. Plymdale, colouring. "'It's true Mr. Plymdale has always been on good terms with Mr. Bulstrode, and Harriet Vincy was my friend long before she married him. But I have always kept my own opinions and told her where she was wrong, poor thing. Still, in point of religion, I must say, Mr. Bulstrode might have done what he has, and worse, and yet have been a man of no religion. I don't say that there has not been a little too much of that. I like moderation myself. But truth is truth. The men tried at the Assizes were not all over-religious, I suppose. Well, said Mrs. Hackbutt, wheeling adroitly, all I can say is that I think she ought to separate from him i can't say that said mrs sprague she took him for better or worse you know but worse can never mean finding out that your husband is fit for newgate said mrs hackbutt fancy living with such a man i should expect to be poisoned yes i think myself it is an encouragement to crime if such men are to be taken care of and waited on by good wives said mrs tom toller "'And a good wife poor Harriet has been,' said Mrs. Plymdale. "'She thinks her husband the first of men. "'It's true he never has denied her anything.' "'Well, we shall see what she will do,' said Mrs. Hackbutt. "'I suppose she knows nothing yet, poor creature. "'I do hope and trust I shall not see her, "'for I should be frightened to death "'lest I should say anything about her husband. "'Do you think any hint has reached her?' "'I should hardly think so,' said Mrs. Toller. "'We hear that he is ill, and has never stirred out of the house since the meeting on Thursday. But she was with her girls at church yesterday, and they had new Tuscan bonnets. Her own had a feather in it. I have never seen that her religion made any difference in her dress.' "'She wears very neat patterns always,' said Mrs. Plymdale, a little stung." and that feather I know she got dyed a pale lavender on purpose to be consistent. I must say it of Harriet, that she wishes to do right. As to her knowing what has happened, it can't be kept from her long, said Mrs. Hackbutt. The Vincys know, for Mr. Vincy was at the meeting. It will be a great blow to him. There is his daughter as well as his sister. Yes, indeed, said Mrs. Sprague nobody supposes that mr lydgate can go on holding up his head in middlemarch things look so black about the thousand pounds he took just at that man's death it really makes one shudder pride must have a fall said mrs hackbutt i am not so sorry for rosamond Vincy as i am for her aunt said mrs plymdale she needed a lesson i suppose the bulstrodes will go and live abroad somewhere said mrs sprague that is what is generally done when there is anything disgraceful in a family and a most deadly blow it will be to harriet said mrs if ever a woman was crushed she will be i pity her from my heart and with all her faults few women are better from a girl she had the neatest ways and was always good-hearted and as open as the day you might look into her drawers when you would, always the same. And so she has brought up Kate and Ellen. You may think how hard it will be for her to go among foreigners. The doctor says this is what he should recommend the Lydgates to do, said Mrs. Sprague. He says Lydgate ought to have kept among the French. That would suit her well enough, I dare say, said Mrs. Plymdale. There is that kind of lightness about her. But she got that from her mother, she never got it from her aunt bulstrode who always gave her good advice and to my knowledge would rather have had her marry elsewhere mrs plymdale was in a situation which caused her some complication of feeling there had been not only her intimacy with mrs bulstrode but also a profitable business relation of the great plymdale dying-house with mr bulstrode which on the one hand would have inclined her to desire that the mildest view of his character should be the true one, but on the other made her the more afraid of seeming to palliate his culpability. Again the late alliance of her family with the Tollers had brought her in connection with the best circle, which gratified her in every direction except in the inclination to those serious views which she believed to be the best in another sense. The sharp little woman's conscience was somewhat troubled in the adjustment of these opposing bests, and of her griefs and satisfactions under late events which were likely to humble those who needed humbling, but also to fall heavily on her old friend, whose faults she would have preferred seeing on a background of prosperity. Poor Mrs. Bulstrode, meanwhile, had been no further shaken by the oncoming tread of calamity than in the busier stirring of that secret uneasiness which had always been present in her since the last visit of Raffles to the shrubs. That the hateful man had come ill to Stone Court, and that her husband had chosen to remain there and watch over him, she allowed to be explained by the fact that Raffles had been employed and aided in earlier days, and that this made a tie of benevolence towards him in his degraded helplessness. And she had been since then innocently cheered by her husband's more hopeful speech about his own health and ability to continue his attention to business. The calm was disturbed when Lydgate had brought him home ill from the meeting, and in spite of comforting assurances during the next few days, she cried in private from the conviction that her husband was not suffering from bodily illness merely, but from something that afflicted his mind. He would not allow her to read to him, and scarcely to sit with him, alleging nervous susceptibility to sounds and movements. Yet she suspected that in shutting himself up in his private room he wanted to be busy with his papers. Something, she felt sure, had happened. Perhaps it was some great loss of money, and she was kept in the dark. Not daring to question her husband, she said to Lydgate, on the fifth day after the meeting, and when she had not left home except to go to church. "'Mr. Lydgate, pray be open with me. I like to know the truth. Has anything happened to Mr. Bulstrode?' "'Some little nervous shock,' said Lydgate evasively. He felt that it was not for him to make the painful revelation. "'But what brought it on?' said Mrs. Bulstrode, looking directly at him with her large dark eyes. There is often something poisonous in the air of public rooms, said Lydgate. Strong men can stand it, but it tells on people in proportion to the delicacy of their systems. It is often impossible to account for the precise moment of an attack, or rather, to say, why the strength gives way at a particular moment. Mrs. Bulstrode was not satisfied with this answer. There remained in her the belief that some calamity had befallen her husband, of which she was to be kept in ignorance, and it was in her nature strongly to object to such concealment. She begged leave for her daughters to sit with their father, and drove into the town to pay some visits, conjecturing that if anything were known to have gone wrong in Mr. Bulstrode's affairs, she should see or hear some sign of it. She called on Mrs. Thesiger, who was not at home and then drove to Mrs. Hackbutt's on the other side of the churchyard. Mrs. Hackbutt saw her coming from an upstairs window, and remembering her former alarm lest she should meet Mrs. Bulstrode, felt almost bound in consistency to send word that she was not at home. But against that there was a sudden strong desire within her for the excitement of an interview in which she was quite determined not to make the slightest allusion to what was in her mind. Hence, mrs Bulstrode was shown into the drawing-room, and mrs Hackbutt went to her, with more tightness of lip and rubbing of her hands than was usually observable in her-these being precautions adopted against freedom of speech. She was resolved not to ask how mr Bulstrode was. I have not been anywhere except to church for nearly a week, said mrs Bulstrode, after a few introductory remarks but Mr. Bulstrode was taken so ill at the meeting on Thursday that I have not liked to leave the house. Mrs. Hackbutt rubbed the back of one hand with the palm of the other held against her chest and let her eyes ramble over the pattern on the rug. "'Was Mr. Hackbutt at the meeting?' persevered Mrs. Bulstrode. "'Yes, he was,' said Mrs. Hackbutt, with the same attitude. "'The land is to be bought by subscription, I believe.' Let us hope that there will be no more cases of cholera to be buried in it," said Mrs. Bulstrode. It is an awful visitation. But I always think Middlemarch a very healthy spot. I suppose it is being used to it from a child, but I never saw the town I should like to live at better, especially our end. "'I am sure I should be glad that she should always live at Middlemarch, Mrs. Bulstrode,' said Mrs. Hackbutt, with a slight sigh." Still, we must learn to resign ourselves wherever our lot may be cast, though I am sure there will always be people in this town who will wish you well. Mrs. Hackbutt longed to say, "'If you take my advice you will part from your husband,' but it seemed clear to her that the poor woman knew nothing of the thunder ready to bolt on her head, and she herself could do no more than prepare her a little." mrs bulstrode felt suddenly rather chill and trembling there was evidently something unusual behind this speech of mrs Hackbutt's. but though she had set out with a desire to be fully informed she found herself unable now to pursue her brave purpose and turning the conversation by an inquiry about the young Hackbutts, she soon took her leave saying that she was going to see mrs plymdale on her way thither she tried to imagine that there might have been some unusually warm sparring at the meeting between mr bulstrode and some of his frequent opponents perhaps mr hackbutt might have been one of them that would account for everything but when she was in conversation with mrs plymdale that comforting explanation seemed no longer tenable selina received her with a pathetic affectionateness and a disposition to give edifying answers on the commonest subjects, which could hardly have reference to an ordinary quarrel, of which the most important consequence was a perturbation of Mr. Bulstrode's health. Beforehand Mrs. Bulstrode had thought that she would sooner question Mrs. Plymdale than any one else, but she found to her surprise that an old friend is not always the person whom it is easiest to make a confidant of there was the barrier of remembered communication under other circumstances, there was the dislike of being pitied and informed by one who had been long wont to allow her the superiority. For certain words of mysterious appropriateness that Mrs. Plymdale let fall about her resolution never to turn her back on her friends, convinced Mrs. Bulstrode that what had happened must be some kind of misfortune and instead of being able to say with her native directness, "'What is it that you have in your mind?' she found herself anxious to get away before she had heard anything more explicit. She began to have an agitating certainty that the misfortune was something more than the mere loss of money, being keenly sensitive to the fact that Selina now, just as Mrs. Hackbutt had done before, avoided noticing what she had said about her husband, as they would have avoided noticing a personal blemish. She said good-bye with nervous haste, and told the coachman to drive to Mr. Vincy's warehouse. In that short drive her dread gathered so much force from the sense of darkness that when she entered the private counting-house where her brother sat at his desk her knees trembled and her usually florid face was deathly pale. Something of the same effect was produced in him by the sight of her he rose from his seat to meet her took her by the hand and said with impulsive rashness god help you harriet you know all that moment was perhaps worse than any which came after it contained that concentrated experience which in great crises of emotion reveals the bias of a nature and is prophetic of the ultimate act which will end an intermediate struggle Without that memory of raffles she might still have thought only of monetary ruin. But now along with her brother's look and words there darted into her mind the idea of some guilt in her husband. Then under the working of terror came the image of her husband exposed to disgrace. And then, after an instant of scorching shame in which she felt only the eyes of the world, with one leap of her heart she was at his side in mournful but unreproaching fellowship, with shame and isolation. All this went on within her in a mere flash of time, while she sank into the chair and raised her eyes to her brother, who stood over her. "'I know nothing, Walter. What is it?' she said faintly. He told her everything, very inartificially, in slow fragments, Making her aware that the scandal went much beyond proof, especially as to the end of Raffles. People will talk, he said. Even if a man has been acquitted by a jury, they'll talk, and nod, and wink, and as far as the world goes, a man might often as well be guilty as not. It's a breakdown blow, and it damages Lydgate as much as Bulstrode. I don't pretend to say what is the truth. "'I only wish we had never heard the name of Bulstrode or Lydgate. "'You'd better have been a Vincy all your life, and so had Rosamond.' "'Mrs. Bulstrode made no reply. "'But you must bear up as well as you can, Harriet. "'People don't blame you. "'And I'll stand by you whatever you make up your mind to do,' said the brother, "'with rough but well-meaning affectionateness. "'Give me your arm to the carriage, Walter,' said Mrs. Bulstrode. "'I feel very weak.' and when she got home she was obliged to say to her daughter, "'I am not well, my dear. I must go and lie down. Attend to your papa. Leave me in quiet. I shall take no dinner.' She locked herself in her room. She needed time to get used to her maimed consciousness, her poor, lopped life, before she could walk steadily to the place allotted her. A new searching light had fallen on her husband's character, and she could not judge him leniently. The twenty years in which she had believed in him and venerated him by virtue of his concealments came back with particulars that made them seem an odious deceit. He had married her with that bad past life hidden behind him, and she had no faith left to protest his innocence of the worst that was imputed to him. Her honest, ostentatious nature made the sharing of a merited dishonour as bitter as it could be to any mortal. But this imperfectly taught woman, whose phrases and habits were an odd patchwork, had a loyal spirit within her. The man whose prosperity she had shared through nearly half a life, and who had unvaryingly cherished her, now that punishment had befallen him, it was not possible to her in any sense to forsake him. There is a forsaking which still sits at the same board, and lies on the same couch with the forsaken soul, withering it the more by unloving proximity. She knew, when she locked her door, that she should unlock it ready to go down to her unhappy husband and espouse his sorrow, and say of his guilt, I will mourn and not reproach. But she needed time to gather up her strength. She needed to sob out her farewell to all the gladness and pride of her life. When she had resolved to go down, she prepared herself by some little acts, which might seem mere folly to a hard onlooker. They were her way of expressing to all spectators, visible or invisible, that she had begun a new life in which she embraced humiliation. She took off all her ornaments and put on a plain black gown, and instead of wearing her much-adorned cap and large bows of hair she brushed her hair down and put on a plain bonnet cap which made her look suddenly like an early methodist bulstrode who knew that his wife had been out and had come in saying that she was not well had spent the time in an agitation equal to hers he had looked forward to her learning the truth from others and had acquiesced in that probability as something easier to him than any confession. But now that he imagined the moment of her knowledge come, he awaited the result in anguish. His daughters had been obliged to consent to leave him, and though he had allowed some food to be brought to him, he had not touched it. He felt himself perishing slowly in unpitied misery. Perhaps he should never see his wife's face with affection in it again. And if he turned to God, There seemed to be no answer but the pressure of retribution. It was eight o'clock in the evening before the door opened and his wife entered. He dared not look up at her. He sat with his eyes bent down, and as she went towards him she thought he looked smaller. He seemed so withered and shrunken. A movement of new compassion and old tenderness went through her like a great wave, and putting one hand on his, which rested on the arm of the chair, and the other on his shoulder, she said, solemnly but kindly, Look up, Nicholas. He raised his eyes with a little start, and looked at her half-amazed for a moment. Her pale face, her changed, mourning dress, the trembling about her mouth all said, I know, and her hands and eyes rested gently on him. He burst out crying, and they cried together, she sitting at his side. They could not yet speak to each other of the shame which she was bearing with him, or of the acts which had brought it down on them. His confession was silent, and her promise of faithfulness was silent. Open-minded as she was, she nevertheless shrank from the words which would have expressed their mutual consciousness as she would have shrunk from flakes of fire she could not say how much is only slander and false suspicion and he did not say i am innocent end of chapter 74 chapter 75 of middlemarch by george eliot this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by margaret espaiet le sentiment de la fausseté de plaisir présent et l'ignorance de la vanité des plaisirs absents cause l'inconstance. PASCAL Rosamond had a gleam of returning cheerfulness when the house was freed from the threatening figure, and when all the disagreeable creditors were paid. But she was not joyous. Her married life had fulfilled none of her hopes, and had been quite spoiled for her imagination. In this brief interval of calm, Lydgate, remembering that he had often been stormy in his hours of perturbation, and mindful of the pain Rosamond had had to bear, was carefully gentle towards her. But he, too, had lost some of his old spirit, and he still felt it necessary to refer to an economical change in their way of living as a matter of course, trying to reconcile her to it gradually, and repressing his anger when she answered by wishing that he would go to live in London. When she did not make this answer, she listened languidly, and wondered what she had that was worth living for. The hard and contemptuous words which had fallen from her husband in his anger had deeply offended that vanity which he had at first called into active enjoyment, and what she regarded as his perverse way of looking at things, kept up a secret repulsion which made her receive all his tenderness as a poor substitute for the happiness he had failed to give her. They were at a disadvantage with their neighbors, and there was no longer any outlook towards Quallingham. There was no outlook anywhere, except in an occasional letter from Will Ladislaw. She had felt stung and disappointed by Will's resolution to quit Middlemarch, for in spite of what she knew and guessed about his admiration for Dorothea, she secretly cherished the belief that he had, or would necessarily come to have, much more admiration for herself, Rosamond being one of those women who live much in the idea that each man they meet would have preferred them if the preference had not been hopeless. Mrs. Casaubon was all very well, but Will's interest in her dated before he knew Mrs. Lydgate. Rosamond took his way of talking to herself— which was a mixture of playful fault-finding and hyperbolical gallantry, as the disguise of a deeper feeling, and in his presence she felt that agreeable titillation of vanity and sense of romantic drama which Lydgate's presence had no longer the magic to create. She even fancied—what will not men and women fancy in these matters— that Will exaggerated his admiration for Mrs. Casaubon in order to pique herself. In this way poor Rosamond's brain had been busy before Will's departure. He would have made, she thought, a much more suitable husband for her than she had found in Lydgate. No notion could have been falser than this, for Rosamond's discontent in her marriage was due to the conditions of marriage itself to its demand for self-suppression and tolerance and not to the nature of her husband but the easy conception of an unreal better had a sentimental charm which diverted her ennui she constructed a little romance which was to vary the flatness of her life will ladislaw was always to be a bachelor and live near her always to be at her command and have an understood, though never fully expressed, passion for her, which would be sending out lambent flames every now and then in interesting scenes. His departure had been a proportionate disappointment, and had sadly increased her weariness of Middlemarch, but at first she had the alternative dream of pleasures in store from her intercourse with the family at Quallingham. Since then the troubles of her married life had deepened, and the absence of other relief encouraged her regretful rumination over that thin romance which she had once fed on. Men and women make sad mistakes about their own symptoms, taking their vague, uneasy longings, sometimes for genius, sometimes for religion, and oftener still for a mighty love. Will Ladislaw had written chatty letters, half to her and half to Lydgate, and she had replied, their separation, she felt, was not likely to be final, and the change she now most longed for was that Lydgate should go to live in London. Everything would be agreeable in London, and she had set to work with quiet determination to win this result, when there came a sudden, delightful promise which inspirited her. It came shortly before the memorable meeting at the town hall, and was nothing less than a letter from Will Ladislaw to Lydgate, which turned, indeed, chiefly on his new interest in plans of colonization, but mentioned, incidentally, that he might find it necessary to pay a visit to Middlemarch within the next few weeks. A very pleasant necessity, he said, almost as good as holidays to a schoolboy. He hoped there was his old place on the rug, and a great deal of music in store for him. But he was quite uncertain as to the time. While Lydgate was reading the letter to Rosamond, her face looked like a reviving flower, it grew prettier and more blooming. There was nothing unendurable now. The debts were paid, Mr. Ladislaw was coming, and Lydgate would be persuaded to leave Middlemarch and settle in London, which was so different from a provincial town. That was a bright bit of morning. But soon the sky became black over poor Rosamond. The presence of a new gloom in her husband, about which he was entirely reserved towards her, for he dreaded to expose his lacerated feeling to her neutrality and misconception, soon received a painfully strange explanation, alien to all her previous notions of what could affect her happiness. In the new gaiety of her spirits, thinking that Lydgate had merely a worse fit of moodiness than usual, causing him to leave her remarks unanswered, and evidently to keep out of her way as much as possible, She chose, a few days after the meeting, and without speaking to him on the subject, to send out notes of invitation for a small evening party, feeling convinced that this was a judicious step, since people seemed to have been keeping aloof from them, and wanted restoring to the old habit of intercourse. When the invitations had been accepted, she would tell Lydgate, and give him a wise admonition as to how a medical man should behave to his neighbors for Rosamond had the gravest little airs possible about other people's duties. But all the invitations were declined, and the last answer came into Lydgate's hands. "'This is Chichely's scratch. What is he writing to you about?' said Lydgate wonderingly as he handed the note to her. She was obliged to let him see it, and, looking at her severely, he said— Why on earth have you been sending out invitations without telling me, Rosamond? I beg, I insist, that you will not invite anyone to this house. I suppose you have been inviting others, and they have refused too. She said nothing. Do you hear me? sundered Lydgate. Yes, certainly I hear you, said Rosamond, turning her head aside with the movement of a graceful long-necked bird lydgate tossed his head without any grace and walked out of the room feeling himself dangerous rosamond's thought was that he was getting more and more unbearable not that there was any new special reason for this peremptoriness his indisposition to tell her anything in which he was sure beforehand that she would not be interested was growing into an unreflecting habit and she was in ignorance of everything connected with the thousand pounds except that the loan had come from her uncle Bulstrode. Lydgate's odious humors, and their neighbor's apparent avoidance of them, had an unaccountable date for her in their relief from money difficulties. If the invitations had been accepted, she would have gone to invite her mamma and the rest, whom she had seen nothing of for several days, and she now put on her bonnet to go and inquire what had become of them all suddenly feeling as if there were a conspiracy to leave her in isolation with a husband disposed to offend everybody. It was after the dinner hour, and she found her father and mother seated together alone in the drawing-room. They greeted her with sad looks, saying, "'Well, my dear,' and no more. She had never seen her father look so downcast, and seating herself near him she said, "'Is there anything the matter, papa?' He did not answer, but Mrs. Vincy said, "'Oh, my dear, have you heard nothing? It won't be long before it reaches you.' "'Is it anything about Tertius?' said Rosamond, turning pale. The idea of trouble immediately connected itself with what had been unaccountable to her in him. "'Oh, my dear, yes. To think of your marrying into this trouble. Debt was bad enough, but this will be worse.' "'Stay, stay, Lucy,' said Mr. Vincy. "'Have you heard nothing about your Uncle Bulstrode, Rosamond?' "'No, Papa,' said the poor thing, feeling as if trouble were not anything she had before experienced, but some invisible power with an iron grasp that made her soul faint within her. Her father told her everything, saying at the end, "'It's better for you to know, my dear. I think Lydgate must leave the town.' "'Things have gone against him. I dare say he couldn't help it.' "'I don't accuse him of any harm,' said Mr. Vincy. He had always before been disposed to find the utmost fault with Lydgate. The shock to Rosamond was terrible. It seemed to her that no lot could be so cruelly hard as hers to have married a man who had become the centre of infamous suspicions. In many cases—' It is inevitable that the shame is felt to be the worst part of the crime, and it would have required a great deal of disentangling reflection such as never entered into Rosamond's life for her in these moments to feel that her trouble was less than if her husband had been certainly known to have done something criminal. All the shame seemed to be there. And she had innocently married this man with the belief that he and his family were a glory to her. She showed her usual reticence to her parents, and only said that if Lydgate had done as she wished, he would have left Middlemarch long ago. "'She bears it beyond anything,' said her mother when she was gone. "'Ah, thank God,' said Mr. Vincy, who was much broken down. But Rosamond went home with a sense of justified repugnance towards her husband. What had he really done? How had he really acted?' she did not know. Why had he not told her everything? He did not speak to her on the subject, and of course she could not speak to him. It came into her mind once that she would ask her father to let her go home again, but dwelling on that prospect made it seem utter dreariness to her. A married woman gone back to live with her parents. Life seemed to have no meaning for her in such a position. She could not contemplate herself in it. The next two days Lydgate observed a change in her, and believed that she had heard the bad news. Would she speak to him about it, or would she go on forever in the silence which seemed to imply that she believed him guilty? We must remember that he was in a morbid state of mind, in which almost all contact was pain. Certainly Rosamond in this case had equal reason to complain of reserve and want of confidence on his part, but in the bitterness of his soul he excused himself. Was he not justified in shrinking from the task of telling her, since now she knew the truth, she had no impulse to speak to him? But a deeper-lying consciousness that he was in fault made him restless, and the silence between them became intolerable to him. It was as if they were both adrift on one piece of wreck and looked away from each other. He thought, I AM A FOOL. HAVEN'T I GIVEN UP EXPECTING ANYTHING? I HAVE MARRIED CARE, NOT HELP. AND THAT EVENING HE SAID, "Rosamond, HAVE YOU HEARD ANYTHING THAT DISTRESSES YOU? YES, SHE ANSWERED, LAYING DOWN HER WORK, WITH A LANGUID semi-consciousness, MOST UNLIKE HER USUAL SELF. WHAT HAVE YOU HEARD? EVERYTHING, I SUPPOSE, PAPA TOLD ME. That people think me disgraced? Yes, said Rosamond, faintly, beginning to sew again automatically. There was silence. Lydgate thought, if she has any trust in me, any notion of what I am, she ought to speak now and say that she does not believe I have deserved disgrace. But Rosamond, on her side, went on, moving her fingers languidly whatever was to be said on the subject she expected to come from tertius what did she know and if he were innocent of any wrong why did he not do something to clear himself this silence of hers brought a new rush of gall to that bitter mood in which lydgate had been saying to himself that nobody believed in him even fairbrother had not come forward He had begun to question her with the intent that their conversation should disperse the chill fog which had gathered between them, but he felt his resolution checked by despairing resentment. Even this trouble, like the rest, she seemed to regard as if it were hers alone. He was always to her a being apart, doing what she objected to. He started from his chair with an angry impulse, and thrusting his hands in his pockets, walked up and down the room. There was an underlying consciousness all the while that he should have to master this anger, and tell her everything, and convince her of the facts. For he had almost learned the lesson that he must bend himself to her nature, and that because she came short in her sympathy he must give the more. Soon he recurred to his intention of opening himself. The occasion must not be lost if he could bring her to feel, with some solemnity, that there was a slander which must be met and not run away from, and that the whole trouble had come out of his desperate want of money, it would be a moment for urging powerfully on her that they should be one in the resolve to do with as little money as possible, so that they might weather the bad time and keep themselves independent. He would mention the definite measures which he desired to take, and win her to a willing spirit. He was bound to try this, and what else was there for him to do? He did not know how long he had been walking uneasily backwards and forwards, but Rosamond felt that it was long, and wished that he would sit down. She, too, had begun to think this an opportunity for urging on Tertius what he ought to do. Whatever might be the truth about all this misery, there was one dread which asserted itself. Lydgate at last seated himself, not in his usual chair, but in one nearer to Rosamond, leaning aside in it towards her, and looking at her gravely before he reopened the sad subject. He had conquered himself so far, and was about to speak with a sense of solemnity, as on an occasion which was not to be repeated. He had even opened his lips, when Rosamond, letting her hands fall, looked at him and said, "'Surely, Tertius.' "'Well?' "'Surely now at last you have given up the idea of staying in Middlemarch. I cannot go on living here. Let us go to London. Papa and everyone else says you had better go. Whatever misery I have to put up with, it will be easier away from here.' Lydgate felt miserably jarred. Instead of that critical outpouring for which he had prepared himself with effort, here was the old round to be gone through again. He could not bear it. With a quick change of countenance he rose and went out of the room. Perhaps if he had been strong enough to persist in his determination to be the more because she was less, that evening might have had better issue. If his energy could have borne down that check, he might still have wrought on Rosamond's vision and will. We cannot be sure that any natures, however inflexible or peculiar, will resist this effect from a more massive being than their own. They may be taken by storm and for the moment converted, becoming part of the soul which enwraps them in the ardor of its movement. But poor Lydgate had a throbbing pain within him, and his energy had fallen short of its task. The beginning of mutual understanding and resolve seemed as far off as ever nay it seemed blocked out by the sense of unsuccessful effort they lived on from day to day with their thoughts still apart lydgate going about what work he had in a mood of despair and rosamond feeling with some justification that he was behaving cruelly it was of no use to say anything to tertius but when will ladislaw came she was determined to tell him everything in spite of her general reticence she needed someone who would recognize her wrongs end of chapter 75 chapter 76 of middlemarch by george eliot this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by margaret espellet to mercy pity peace and love all pray in their distress and to these virtues of delight return their thankfulness. For mercy has a human heart, pity a human face, and love the human form divine, and peace the human dress. WILLIAM BLAKE SONGS OF INNOCENCE Some days later Lydgate was writing to Lowick Manor in consequence of a summons from Dorothea. The summons had not been unexpected, since it had followed a letter from Mr. Bulstrode in which he stated that he had resumed his arrangements for quitting Middlemarch and must remind Lydgate of his previous communications about the hospital to the purport of which he still adhered. It had been his duty, before taking further steps, to reopen the subject with Mrs. Casaubon, who now wished, as before, to discuss the question with Lydgate. "'Your views may possibly have undergone some change,' wrote Mr. Bulstrode but, in that case also, it is desirable that you should lay them before her. Dorothea awaited his arrival with eager interest. Though, in deference to her masculine advisers, she had refrained from what Sir James had called interfering in this Bulstrode business, the hardship of Lydgate's position was continually in her mind, and, when Bulstrode applied to her again about the hospital, she felt that the opportunity was come to her which she had been hindered from hastening in her luxurious home wandering under the boughs of her own great trees her thought was going out over the lot of others and her emotions were imprisoned the idea of some active good within her reach haunted her like a passion and another's need having once come to her as a distinct image preoccupied her desire with a yearning to give relief and made her own ease tasteless She was full of confident hope about this interview with Lydgate, never heeding what was said of his personal reserve, never heeding that she was a very young woman. Nothing could have seemed more irrelevant to Dorothea than insistence on her youth and sex when she was moved to show her human fellowship. As she sat waiting in the library she could do nothing but live through again all the past scenes which had brought Lydgate into her memories. They all owed their significance to her marriage and its troubles. But no, there were two occasions in which the image of Lydgate had come painfully in connection with his wife and someone else. The pain had been allayed for Dorothea, but it had left in her an awakened conjecture as to what Lydgate's marriage might be to him, a susceptibility to the slightest hint about Mrs. Lydgate. These thoughts were like a drama to her and made her eyes bright, and gave an attitude of suspense to her whole frame, though she was only looking out from the brown library on to the turf and the bright green buds which stood in relief against the dark evergreens. When Lydgate came in she was almost shocked at the change in his face, which was strikingly perceptible to her who had not seen him for two months. It was not the change of emaciation, but that effect which even young faces will very soon show from the persistent presence of resentment and despondency. Her cordial look, when she put out her hand to him, softened his expression, but only with melancholy. "'I have wished very much to see you for a long while, Mr. Lydgate,' said Dorothea, when they were seated opposite each other. "'But I put off asking you to come until Mr. Bulstrode applied to me again about the hospital. I know that the advantage of keeping the management of it separate from that of the infirmary depends on you, or, at least, on the good which you are encouraged to hope for from having it under your control. And I am sure you will not refuse to tell me exactly what you think." "'You want to decide whether you should give a generous support to the hospital,' said Lydgate. "'I cannot conscientiously advise you to do it, in dependence on any activity of mine.' I may be obliged to leave the town. He spoke curtly, feeling the ache of despair as to his being able to carry out any purpose that Rosamond had set her mind against. "'Not because there is no one to believe in you,' said Dorothea, pouring out her words in clearness from a full heart. "'I know the unhappy mistakes about you. I knew them from the first moment to be mistakes. You have never done anything vile.' You would not do anything dishonorable. It was the first assurance of belief in him that had fallen on Lydgate's ears. He drew a deep breath and said, Thank you. He could say no more. It was something very new and strange in his life that these few words of trust from a woman should be so much to him. I beseech you to tell me how everything was, said Dorothea, fearlessly. I am sure that the truth would clear you. Lydgate started up from his chair and went towards the window, forgetting where he was. He had so often gone over in his mind the possibility of explaining everything without aggravating appearances that would tell, perhaps unfairly, against Bulstrode, and had so often decided against it. He had so often said to himself that his assertions would not change people's impressions, that Dorothea's words sounded like a temptation to do something which in his soberness he had pronounced to be unreasonable. "'Tell me, pray,' said Dorothea, with simple earnestness. "'Then we can consult together. It is wicked to let people think evil of any one falsely when it can be hindered.' Lydgate turned, remembering where he was, and saw Dorothea's face looking up at him with sweet, trustful gravity. The presence of a noble nature, generous in its wishes, ardent in its charity changes the lights for us we begin to see things again in their larger quieter masses and to believe that we too can be seen and judged in the wholeness of our character that influence was beginning to act on lydgate who had for many days been seeing all life as one who is dragged and struggling amid the throng he sat down again and felt that he was recovering his old self in the consciousness that he was with one who believed in it. I don't want, he said, to bear hard on Bulstrode, who has lent me money of which I was in need, though I would rather have gone without it now. He is hunted down and miserable, and has only a poor thread of life in him. But I should like to tell you everything. It will be a comfort to me to speak where belief has gone beforehand, and where I shall not seem to be offering assertions of my own honesty. You will feel what is fair to another, as you feel what is fair to me. Do trust me, said Dorothea. I will not repeat anything without your leave. But at the very least I could say that you have made all the circumstances clear to me, and that I know you are not in any way guilty. Mr. Fairbrother would believe me, and my uncle, and Sir James Chettam. Nay, there are persons in Middlemarch to whom I could go. Although they don't know much of me, they would believe me. They would know that I could have no other motive than truth and justice. I would take any pains to clear you. I have very little to do. There is nothing better that I can do in the world. Dorothea's voice, as she made this childlike picture of what she would do, might have been almost taken as a proof that she could do it effectively. The searching tenderness of her woman's tones seemed made for a defense against ready accusers. Lydgate did not stay to think that she was quixotic. He gave himself up, for the first time in his life, to the exquisite sense of leaning entirely on a generous sympathy, without any check of proud reserve. And he told her everything. From the time when, under the pressure of his difficulties, he unwillingly made his first application to Bulstrode, gradually, in the relief of speaking, getting into a more thorough utterance of what had gone on in his mind, entering fully into the fact that his treatment of the patient was opposed to the dominant practice, into his doubts at the last, his ideal of medical duty, and his uneasy consciousness that the acceptance of the money had made some difference in his private inclination and professional behavior, though not in his fulfillment of any publicly recognized obligation. "'It has come to my knowledge since,' he added that Hawley sent some one to examine the housekeeper at Stone Court, and she said that she gave the patient all the opium in the phial I left, as well as a good deal of brandy. But that would not have been opposed to ordinary prescriptions, even of first-rate men. The suspicions against me had no hold there. They are grounded on the knowledge that I took money, that Bulstrode had strong motives for wishing the man to die and that he gave me the money as a bribe to concur in some malpractices or other against the patient, that, in any case, I accepted a bribe to hold my tongue. They are just the suspicions that cling the most obstinately, because they lie in people's inclination and can never be disproved. How my orders came to be disobeyed is a question to which I don't know the answer. It is still possible that Bulstrode was innocent of any criminal intention, even possible that he had nothing to do with the disobedience and merely abstained from mentioning it. But all that has nothing to do with the public belief. It is one of those cases on which a man is condemned on the ground of his character. It is believed that he has committed a crime in some undefined way, because he had the motive for doing it, and Bulstrode's character has enveloped me because I took his money. I am simply blighted, like a damaged ear of corn. The business is done, and can't be undone. Oh, it is hard, said Dorothea. I understand the difficulty there is in your vindicating yourself, and that all this should have come to you who had meant to lead a higher life than the common, and to find out better ways. I cannot bear to rest in this as unchangeable." I know you meant that. I remember what you said to me when you first spoke to me about the hospital. There is no sorrow I have thought more about than that. To love what is great, and try to reach it, and yet to fail." Yes, said Lydgate, feeling that here he had found room for the full meaning of his grief. I had some ambition. I meant everything to be different with me. I thought I had more strength and mastery. But the most terrible obstacles are such as nobody can see except oneself. Suppose, said Dorothea meditatively, suppose we kept on the hospital according to the present plan, and you stayed here, though only with the friendship and support of a few, the evil feeling towards you would gradually die out. There would come opportunities in which people would be forced to acknowledge that they had been unjust to you, because they would see that your purposes were pure. You may still win a great fame like the Louis and Lanec I have heard you speak of, and we shall all be proud of you,' she ended with a smile. "'That might do, if I had my old trust in myself,' said Lydgate mournfully. Nothing galls me more than the notion of turning round and running away before this slander, leaving it unchecked behind me. Still, I can't ask anyone to put a great deal of money into a plan which depends on me.' "'It would be quite worth my while,' said Dorothea, simply. "'Only think. I am very uncomfortable with my money, because they tell me I have too little for any great scheme of the sort I like best, and yet I have too much. I don't know what to do. I have seven hundred a year of my own fortune, and nineteen hundred a year that Mr. Casaubon left me, and between three or four thousand of ready money in the bank.' I wished to raise money and pay it off gradually out of my income, which I don't want, to buy land with, and found a village which should be a school of industry. But Sir James and my uncle have convinced me that the risk would be too great. So you see that what I should most rejoice at would be to have something good to do with my money. I should like it to make other people's lives better to them. It makes me very uneasy, coming all to me who don't want it. A smile broke through the gloom of Lydgate's face. The childlike, grave-eyed earnestness with which Dorothea said all this was irresistible blent into an adorable whole with her ready understanding of high experience. Of lower experience, such as plays a great part in the world, poor Mrs. Casaubon had a very blurred, short-sighted knowledge, little helped by her imagination. But she took the smile as encouragement of her plan. "'I think you see now that you spoke too scrupulously,' she said, in a tone of persuasion. "'The hospital would be one good, and making your life quite whole and well again would be another.' Lydgate's smile had died away. "'You have the goodness as well as the money to do all that, if it could be done,' he said. "'But—' He hesitated a little while, looking vaguely towards the window, and she sat in silent expectation. At last he turned towards her and said impetuously, "'Why should I not tell you? You know what sort of bond marriage is. You will understand everything.' Dorothea felt her heart beginning to beat faster. Had he that sorrow, too? But she feared to say any word, and he went on immediately. "'It is impossible for me now to do anything, to take any step without considering my wife's happiness.' The thing that I might like to do if I were alone is become impossible to me. I can't see her miserable. She married me without knowing what she was going into, and it might have been better for her if she had not married me. I know, I know, you could not give her pain if you were not obliged to do it, said Dorothea, with keen memory of her own life. And she has set her mind against staying. She wishes to go.' The troubles she has had here have wearied her," said Lydgate, breaking off again, lest he should say too much. "'But when she saw the good that might come of stain,' said Dorothea, remonstrantly, looking at Lydgate as if he had forgotten the reasons which had just been considered, he did not speak immediately. "'She would not see it,' he said at last, curtly, feeling at first that this statement must do without explanation." AND, INDEED, I HAVE LOST ALL SPIRIT ABOUT CARRYING ON MY LIFE HERE." He paused a moment, and then, following the impulse to let Dorothea see deeper into the difficulty of his life, he said, "'The fact is, this trouble has come upon her confusedly. We have not been able to speak to each other about it. I am not sure what is in her mind about it. She may fear that I have really done something base. It is my fault.' I ought to be more open. But I have been suffering cruelly." "'May I go and see her?' said Dorothea eagerly. "'Would she accept my sympathy? I would tell her that you have not been blamable before any one's judgment but your own. I would tell her that you shall be cleared in every fair mind. I would cheer her heart. Will you ask her if I may go see her? I did see her once.' "'I am sure you may,' said Lydgate, seizing the proposition with some hope. "'She would feel honoured, cheered, I think, by the proof that you have at least some respect for me. "'I will not speak to her about your coming, that she may not connect it with my wishes at all. "'I know very well that I ought not to have left anything to be told her by others. "'But—' "'He broke off, and there was a moment's silence. "'Dorothea refrained from saying what was in her mind. "'How well she knew that there might be invisible barriers to speech between husband and wife.' This was a point on which even sympathy might make a wound. She returned to the more outward aspect of Lydgate's position, saying cheerfully, And if Mrs. Lydgate knew that there were friends who would believe in you and support you, she might then be glad that you should stay in your place and recover your hopes, and do what you meant to do. Perhaps then you would see that it was right to agree with what I proposed about your continuing at the hospital. Surely you would— if you still have faith in it as a means of making your knowledge useful." Lydgate did not answer, and she saw that he was debating with himself. "'You need not decide immediately,' she said gently. "'A few days hence it will be early enough for me to send my answer to Mr. Bulstrode.' Lydgate still waited, but at last turned to speak in his most decisive tones. "'No.' I prefer that there should be no interval left for wavering. I am no longer sure enough of myself. I mean of what it would be possible for me to do under the changed circumstances of my life. It would be dishonorable to let others engage themselves to do anything serious in dependence on me. I might be obliged to go away after all. I see little chance of anything else. The whole thing is too problematic. I cannot consent to be the cause of your goodness being wasted. No, let the new hospital be joined with the old infirmary, and everything go on as it might have done if I had never come. I have kept a valuable register since I have been there. I shall send it to a man who will make use of it,' he ended bitterly. "'I can think of nothing for a long while but getting an income.' "'It hurts me very much to hear you speak so hopelessly,' said Dorothea. It would be a happiness to your friends, who believe in your future, in your power to do great things, if you would let them save you from that. Think how much money I have. It will be like taking a burden from me if you took some of it every year till you got free from this fettering want of income. Why should not people do these things? It is so difficult to make shares at all even. This is one way. God bless you, Mrs. Casaubon, said Lydgate, rising as if with the same impulse that made his words energetic, and resting his arm on the back of the great leather chair he had been sitting in. It is good that you should have such feelings. But I am not the man who ought to allow himself to benefit by them. I have not given guarantees enough. I must not at least sink into the degradation of being pensioned for work that I never achieved. It is very clear to me that I must not count on anything else than getting away from Middlemarch as soon as I can manage it. I should not be able for a long while, at the very best, to get an income here, and and it is easier to make necessary changes in a new place. I must do as other men do and think what will please the world and bring in money, looking for a little opening in the London crowd." and push myself, set up in a watering place, or go to some southern town where there are plenty of idle English, and get myself puffed. That is the sort of shell I must creep into and try to keep my soul alive in. Now, that is not brave, said Dorothea, to give up the fight. No, it is not brave, said Lydgate. But if a man is afraid of creeping paralysis, then in another tone, Yet you have made a great difference in my courage by believing in me. Everything seems more bearable since I have talked to you, and if you can clear me in a few other minds, especially in Fairbrothers, I shall be deeply grateful. The point I wish you not to mention is the fact of disobedience to my orders. That would soon get distorted. After all, there is no evidence for me but people's opinion of me beforehand. You can only repeat my own report of myself. "'Mr. Fairbrother will believe, others will believe,' said Dorothea. "'I can say of you what will make it stupidity to suppose that you would be bribed to do a wickedness.' "'I don't know,' said Lydgate, with something like a groan in his voice. "'I have not taken a bribe yet, but there is a pale shade of bribery which is sometimes called prosperity.' "'You will do me another great kindness, then, and come to see my wife?' "'Yes, I will. I remember how pretty she is,' said Dorothea, into whose mind every impression about Rosamond had cut deep. "'I hope she will like me.' As Lydgate rode away, he thought, "'This young creature has a heart large enough for the Virgin Mary. She evidently thinks nothing of her own future, and would pledge away half her income at once, as if she wanted nothing for herself but a chair to sit in, from which she can look down with those clear eyes at the poor mortals who pray to her. She seems to have what I never saw in any woman before, a fountain of friendship towards men. A man can make a friend of her. Casaubon must have raised some heroic hallucination in her. I wonder if she could have any other sort of passion for a man. Ladislaw, there was certainly an unusual feeling between them, and Casaubon must have had a notion of it. Well, her love might help a man more than her money. Dorothea on her side had immediately formed a plan of relieving Lydgate from his obligation to Bulstrode, which she felt sure was a part, though small, of the galling pressure he had to bear. She sat down at once under the inspiration of their interview, and wrote a brief note in which she pleaded that she had more claim than Mr. Bulstrode had to the satisfaction of providing the money which had been serviceable to Lydgate, that it would be unkind in Lydgate not to grant her the position of being his helper in this small matter, the favor being entirely to her, who had so little that was plainly marked out for her to do with her superfluous money. He might call her a creditor, or by any other name, if it did but imply that he granted her request. She enclosed a check for a thousand pounds and determined to take the letter with her the next day when she went to see Rosamond. End of chapter 76. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or Mc Crispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day.